0: The Majority Report with, with Sam Cedar.
1: It is Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. My name is Sam Cedar. This is the five time award winning Majority Report. We are broadcasting live steps from the industrially ravaged Gowanus Canal in the heartland of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. On the program today, Illegal. How America's lawless immigration regime threatens all of us. Elizabeth Cohen will be on the program. Meanwhile, Bloomberg throws the gold plated kitchen sink at Bernie Sanders. After Sanders' latest polls show he is expanding his national lead, he's taken the lead to the African Americans. From Joe Biden. Meanwhile, Donald Trump focuses on the stock market and ignores the coronavirus as the production and shipment of 150 different prescription drugs are now in jeopardy. Meanwhile, Trump is in India as attacks on Muslims increase. And Mitch McConnell furthers the assault on a woman's right to shoes and her bodily sovereignty. Meanwhile, the FBI is investigating a massive Border Patrol Union Fund's embezzlement case. And again, once again, calls for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself because of the work of his wife, Ginny. Harvey Weinstein, uh, found guilty of rape, awaits sentencing, and the UC Santa Cruz strikers are to be fired from their teaching assistant positions. All this <clears throat> and more on today's program. A Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Just a programming note for you. Today is Tuesday, February 25th at... 8 p.m. or so, maybe 730, we will um, be starting our coverage of tonight's debate. There is a debate tonight in South Carolina, if you were not aware of uh, that, uh, or if you were unaware, I should say. And uh, that debate um, promises to be a rather, I think, explosive one. Uh, well, I think it's safe to anticipate there are going to be attacks from Michael Bloomberg on Bernie Sanders. I think it's fair to anticipate there will be attacks on Michael Bloomberg from Elizabeth Warren and just about everybody else. I believe it is fair to assume that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg will be maybe coming to actual fisticuffs.
2: Oh, and my God. I cannot wait to see that.
1: Tom Steyer's in the race. And... Joe Biden is scheduled to be there, but one never knows. One can get lost on the way to uh, the debates. And we will—we uh, <clears throat> actually have a programmatic announcement today to make about Joe Biden, uh, but we will hold off on that. We have one video to play, but there's, we're, 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 we're entering into the realm where we're not going to play certain videos about Joe Biden. Or uh, sound drops. Some sound drops we're going to keep.
3: Right. But some but, we're going to But there's retire. some we're not.
1: We're going to retire. In the interest of... In interest of honestly, encouraging him to retire as well. <laughs> honestly, it's just... Yeah, it's... At one point... Um, but who knows? I mean, the reality is Joe Biden could win tonight. Or not tonight. Uh, Saturday in South Carolina. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Um,
2: He's so much more charming when you depict him as, like, this Mr. Magoo-like character. Especially,
3: yeah. like, on the pages of The Onion.
1: Yes. And yeah. and if he was just not sort of like... Um, <clears throat> if there wasn't the potential that he could actually win the nomination and all of our fates would be in his hands. That's what would be... That's the most concerning thing. Um Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a while since we've checked in with the pontiff. Uh, of course, I'm speaking of, uh, of uh, Ben Shapiro. He is uh, the self-anointed Pope of the Jews. Uh, he is the one who gets to determine who is a Jew and who is not a Jew. And uh, let's weigh in today to see who Ben Shapiro has decided by his um, great uh, grace, his holy grace, Who shall be a Jew and who shall not be a Jew?
4: You're deeply concerned about anti-Semitism, but you don't care about the fact that Bernie Sanders is, he campaigns with open anti-Semites. That Bernie Sanders is the Jeremy Corbyn of the United States. He spends all his time hanging out with people who despise Jews. and Pause it for one second. Now, for the analogy to be correct, aside from all the other
1: lies that he's telling, Jeremy Corbyn would also have to be Jewish. (laughs) Right. That's the breakdown in the analogy.
2: Well, Bernie's not really
1: Jewish, though. Well, we, we got to g- get there. But I mean, even nominally, Jeremy Corbyn does not even claim to be Jewish. In fact, he doesn't even claim that his um, family members, distant family members, were killed by Hitler for being Jewish. That's where the, the analogy breaks down at the beginning.
4: And want to see the Jewish state destroyed. Okay, the Bernie Sanders over the weekend suggested he's never spoken at an APAC policy conference, by the way, at an American Israel Public Affairs Committee conference. He's never spoken at one, not for years, ever. Right now, when he's a presidential candidate in 2016, never. Okay, he put out a statement suggesting that he would not speak at APAC, said Bernie said Bernie Sanders, who, again, this when people talk about his Jewish roots, he's so Jewish in terms of his actual practice, in terms of how much he cares about Judaism. Not his ethnic Judaism. Ethnic Judaism is ethnic Judaism. It's just an ethnicity. But in terms of his actual practical Judaism and how much he cares about Judaism, dude's is as Jewish as a ham sandwich. He's Jewish like Karl Marx was Jewish. Okay, Bernie Sanders tweets out: "The Israeli really people have a right to live in peace and security. So do the Palestinian people." First of all, I have not seen one shred of evidence that Bernie actually believes that Jewish people in Israel have a right to live in peace and security. Since he has backed every single deal that would do damage to the safety and security of the people of Israel, and supports giving
1: pause. It for anything. one second now. Uh, Ben surely knows this because he is the Pope of the Jews. But not every Israeli Jew would constitute a Jew in Ben Shapiro's mind. I've got some... I I imagine that the Pope of the Jews has been to Israel. But surely his pontiff, his grace... Must be aware that there are many Jews in Israel who do not practice Judaism whatsoever.
2: Yeah, there's some real bad ones in Tel Aviv.
1: I mean, they're just culturally Jewish. According to the Pope of the Jews, Ben Shapiro.
4: ...have a right to live in peace and security since he has backed every single deal that would do damage to the safety and security of the people of Israel and supports giving foreign aid to Hamas. He said, I remain concerned about the platform APAC provides leaders who express bigotry and oppose basic Palestinian rights. For that reason, I will not attend that conference. As president, I will support the rights of both Israelis and Palestinians and do everything possible to bring peace and security to the region. Bullcrap. Hey, bullcrap. AIPAC is the most milquetoast organization in Israel affairs. Like the most milquetoast. They have everybody. Democrats, Republicans, moderates, rat- like Dave, everybody speaks to AIPAC. Okay, but Bernie is saying that AIPAC is too much for him. As we will see, Bernie is fine with anti-Semites in his own campaign. So spare me your crocodile teeters over anti-Semitism. All you ridiculous leftists who don't give a damn when Jews are under rocket fire in Israel and don't give a damn when Jews are being beaten on the streets of Williamsburg. Now you're coming out of the woodwork to inform me that Chris Matthews is an anti-Semite because he made an oblique statement about people who aren't willing to accept reality in history. People are ridiculous. You're ridiculous. You don't give a crap about anti-Semitism. If you did, you wouldn't be nominating a guy who is more than happy to hobnob with anti-Semites. Again, the man's as Jewish as Karl Marx was Jewish.
1: Um, I mean, I, you know, aside from the irony of all the people that uh, Ben Shapiro has platformed uh, in his day and has supported, who have platformed other people who have a a far more militant um, claim. Now, of course, um, the Pope, Ben Shapiro, does not believe that Bernie Sanders qualifies as Jewish because the Pope, Ben Shapiro. Now, let me ask you this. I know everybody says that he wears a kippah, but doesn't also the Pope also wear what looks like a kippah? Because I wonder if Ben Shapiro, when he's not out in public, wears the big Pope hat.
3: Now, <sighs> so I just tried to look up to see if, um, you know, calling people Jews in name only was one of the things he apologized and is, so here's a giant list of all the dumb stuff I've ever said, don't worry, I'll keep updating it thing, but it's behind a paywall now.
5: Ah!
6: <laughs>
1: That's smart. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, folks, uh, incidentally, that reminds me, um, I have written a list of uh, some of my largest apologies for a lot of things that you're not aware. Some of the worst stuff you've done. Some of the worst things I've done, things that I have never, ever even uh, acknowledged happened in public. And that's available to you as a member of the majority report. Now, of course, you got to come in as a Sam Cedar member. That is $1,000 a month. But again, that allows you to see... The um, the uh, uh, all of the uh, uh, horrible things that I've done and my apologies for them. Uh, and of course, uh, we only take that in year long installments. Uh, so uh, you could sign up at jointhemajorityreport.com. And I've just been informed that um, uh, the Pope Yamaka is uh, called a Zucchetto. So, I mean, it's not clear to me. If what Shapiro is wearing is a kippah or a yarmulke, or in fact, a zucchetto. I'm learning a lot. He's the Pope. He gets to decide who a Jew is and who a Jew is not.
2: Yep, and all the Jews listen to him. Now, that's That's just what we're like. Here's the thing.
1: Ben Shapiro practices rabbinic Judaism. And everyone knows that rabbinic Judaism is less than... 2,100 years old. I practiced the only true Judaism, which is the one of the temple where priests ruled the day, Hebrew priests, and we, because I say we, because I am a real Jew, and Ben Shapiro is a pretender, and the high priests would accept uh, all sorts of, of gifts, uh, and um, sacrifices. So you could bring me a goat, or you could bring me money. And it wasn't until Ben Shapiro's friend Jesus came in and threw the money changes aside. So it is so ironic to me that the Pope, Ben Shapiro, pretends that he knows what Jews are, but I tell you right now, I am the one who decides who a real Jew is, and Ben Shapiro is no real Jew. In fact, this whole APEC conspiracy have is, a, what, is a, what is known as a beard. It's a beard. To hide the fact that he's not a real Jew. And I also notice he shaves. He shaves. He shaves in the five points. It's a real problem. It's a real problem.
2: I thought you were going to say you practice the immortal science of Marxist-Leninism.
1: No, that is not true either. I just, I just am full-on... Uh, temple based, um, uh, Hebrew, Hebrew So there you go. Uh, all right, well, folks, um, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Elizabeth Cohen about her book, Illegal, how America's lawless immigration regime threatens us all. We'll be right back after this. We are back, Sam Cedar on the Majority Report on the phone. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program professor of political science at Syracuse University, Elizabeth F. Cohen, author of Illegal, How America's Lawless Immigration Regime Threatens Us All. Uh Elizabeth, welcome to the program.
7: Thanks so much, Sam.
1: Uh all right, let's I want to start and and what you've given us is a um is it is a history of sorts of our um our immigration policy, in many respects, our lack of immigration policy, and um, and uh, really until the the present day, um, I'm not sure what that was, but uh, uh, let's start with the the 1924. Uh, it's the National Origins Act, right? The Johnson Reed Act.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah this was. Um... Our country's first attempt at comprehensive immigration reform, and it was comprehensively restrictionist based on race. So Congress enacted quotas for almost all countries sending immigrants to the United States at the time. Those were European countries. It was uh, based on a lot of pretty shoddy race science about who would make a good citizen who was and was not white at the time. Most European countries uh, were not considered white ethnicities in the U.S., and it effectively ended most immigration to the U.S. in the 1950s. What? What? I
1: mean, what was the impetus? What was the impetus? A of of that act. I mean, just broadly speaking, from a political standpoint, um, and I guess um, prior to that, what was the immigration? Situation, Because I think I have, you know, uh, spoken to people who suggested that the the uh, the influx of immigration prior to that time was in part a function of uh, uh, of a desire to essentially squeeze out recently um, freed slaves from uh, much of the workforce. Oh, we've lost her. Yeah, hold on for one second. Well, yeah, we'll go to the break. Sorry. Hi, sorry about that. I think uh, we lost you for a moment. So uh, you had just told us essentially the um, uh, I guess the the concept behind the uh, National Origins Act. Um, My question to you was was two part. One was what was the political environment that um, that spurred that legislation? A and B, that wave of immigration I have um, uh, read that that preceded the 1924 Act. Uh, maybe, in the decades prior to that was in part a function of a desire to bring in more people, uh, white people uh, or presumably European people, I guess who maybe were not necessarily considered white um, as a way of squeezing out um, uh, recently sla- uh, recently freed slaves um, and limiting their opportunities, particularly in the cities. Um, what if you know anything about the, the the latter please tell me and if you sir obviously uh, about the former what the political context for that legislation was
7: yeah, I mean the political context really um it's an outgrowth of very early twentieth century race science and early pushes at sociobiology i'm uh, sorry to say that I'm a social scientist, and these are early, early social scientists doing what they think is social science, looking at um, craniometry and skull size, and, and looking for who they judge will be good citizens. And unsurprisingly, they find uh, that um, lots and lots of people who are not considered white at the time are unlikely to make good citizens based on their their measurements and um, then something in 1911, uh, the Dillingham Report, co- commissioned by Congress, like turns this into a massive uh, study of immigrants and immigrant neighborhoods, finding that recent immigrants from the, at the time from um, south, mostly south and eastern Europe, so Italy, Sicily, Hungary, Russia, Poland, um, and also I- Irish immigrants that they just, like, fail in every way to demonstrate that they're assimilating, that they're good workers, all these things, It's pretty racialized. But I think the thing that's very hard for people in 2020 to wrap their heads around is that none of these people were considered white at the time. So to kind of hear the narrative that there was an attempt to bring white people from Europe into the country to um, to make things harder for native-born African-American workers is a little difficult to reconcile with the very clear language you hear both in that report and then from like Wilson and others, um, uh, that they did not consider the people coming from Europe at the time to be white or that or like that they would become white, um, or that they could assimilate. So there is a lot of racism and um certainly you know, in the labor market there were attempts to to squeeze the, the labor market and, and um keep wages down on lots of fronts. But um the, the reason for shutting the doors was because the people who were coming in um, were up, kind of upsetting the, the um, genetic mix of the country, according to some of these, these folks making writing the legislation.
1: And so, what was the impact of, of that of that you know shutting the door to Europe?
7: Sure, it's a pretty dramatic immediate drop in immigration because the quotas limited the opportunity for almost anybody from a country that was sending that where people wanted to come from um to, almost to zero so you know i found it interesting in doing the research from this book to look at at the quote country by country quotas and then match them up to what people were saying and like even the scandinavian countries that trump talks about as kind of model white potential immigrants um norway and sweden they were by many of the people writing this bill, not not, um, considered eligible, like not white enough. So immigration plummets throughout the 20s. Uh, One notable thing about the bill is that they omitted any reference or restriction on immigration within the Americas. So uh, it's possible still to come from Mexico. And once there's essentially a halt on labor coming from Europe, Mexican immigration starts there was already immigration coming in from Mexico, but it goes up. So that's one of the first consequences. Second, we invent a federal border patrol and it's tiny, but um, but that's where that gets going. It's part of the 1924 act because you had to actually police the border once you had one. And then um, the beginnings of a rudimentary documentation system because we hadn't really been doing much documentation before that, so all of the kind of, Infrastructure that we're really familiar with now—it didn't exist at the time on the federal level. Um, so enforcement had to be invented uh, uh, during that decade.
5: And but so, but the most
7: important thing is immigration just like stops from Europe. It just grinds to a halt.
1: And so, what 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 changes um, going forward in terms of you know what are the implications? I mean, you, you say there's a rise in immigration from uh, from Latin America from Central America um what what else happens and, 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 and does that take us all the way up to the heart seller act or uh, is there is there any dramatic change in between um uh, the 24 essentially and 65
7: Yeah, I think part of the story there is building um enforcement building border patrol um you know it, it's really interesting to me that um early on that Mexico is very eager to cooperate with U.S. enforcement, particularly Border Patrol, because they're not happy about the fact that so many highly skilled farm workers and other people are, um, are leaving the country. <laughs> and like they're, they're pretty interested in us enforcing uh, some kinds of rules about who can cross over the border. That's less true for people in border communities who find it incredibly disruptive to have to have people essentially sent from Washington telling them what to do, and like they didn't like that they were enforcing prohibition and stuff like that. Um, you get penalties for the first time for being unauthorized in the country in 1929. We never had federal penalties for being unauthorized prior to that, uh, so I talk about that. Um, but, like it's a buildup of enforcement and of a particular type of enforcement culture that um, that carves out a lot of exceptions that aren't available to other law enforcement agencies like really early on, just establishing themselves as very, very heavily empowered in ways that we can now see coming to fruition
1: uh, let's talk about some of that those those early powers, and then we can talk in, in a bit we'll circle back around to talk about the the you know how those Uh, What I would constitute, I mean, to me, constitute abuses, but in some ways they're sort of like, you know, built in structural uh, structurally. Um, uh, What what is like, how are they able to do that? What how is it that, you know, they they have this um, first tell us how they exceed the authority of other police agencies and then um, explain how it is they get away with it.
7: Yeah. So, in the book, I tell a two track story, and the two tracks are kind of uh, first starting with a culture, I call, I call, like a culture of impunity, where their Border Patrol, which is what it's called at the outset, um, is like hard to staff. It attracts a lot of people with criminal records, people who aren't particularly, they can't pass their civil service exam, and like Border Patrol essentially gets permission to just hire people who don't pass because they can't. Staff themselves without doing that And then um, So there's like this early agency culture Of breaking rules and getting away with it And then um, at a certain point They also start to The agency itself starts to say like We can't operate In the way that other law enforcement operates We need um, exemptions And exceptions And so they, they start um, Asking for permission To do things like warrantless searches and seizures, uh, both at the border, so at checkpoints, and then on the interior. And they start out with that in 1946, um, and then kind of try and get that institutionalized so that we get to a point um, now where we have two zones in uh, that Customs and Border Protection operate in. Uh, one is better known. It's the 100-mile zone. So 100 miles from any point on the U.S. border all into the interior, 100 miles is is their jurisdiction, and um, and they there are. Essentially, interpretations of the Fourth Amendment, which protects is supposed to protect us from unreasonable search and seizures unlawful search and seizures that that are interpreted differently for them so that they can enter our cars and stop us uh, in ways that other law enforcement couldn't like essentially they can profile so they can stop people um the the court has said stop people like for looking the wrong way. <laughs> So for look, the original decision says for looking Mexican or having a haircut of the sort that a Mexican person would have. So you know, other law enforcement can't can't do things like that. They're not permitted. They might be doing it, um, but but Customs and Border Protection can. And then you see, you know, all the way up until today, where we're we're seeing court decisions relevant to this that they also do things that that really should be illegal and are never punished for it. So their um, rates of of violent interactions um, using their weapons and in some cases fatally, um, you know, those are those are extraordinarily high.
1: They're they're in fact, I mean, uh, just today. uh, And I'm not even sure if you're aware of this, because I think I I think it may have just uh, broke. I'm not sure. Hernandez uh, versus Mesa. Um, yep. Do you, are you familiar with that? Can you tell us just uh, tell us what the what the issue was there? And and, and the court has ruled essentially that um, uh, the U.S. border patrol agent implicated in this case um, is really not accountable at all for what they did. Not
7: to, accountable. Will you, will you tell Total us impunity. what it was? Tell- yeah. Yeah. This is oh, uh, so. Um, it's certainly not the first time something like this has happened. Um, but a boy uh, was playing at the border and for people who haven't been to the border, haven't read about the border, haven't seen pictures of it, it's not like a line that you hop over, Um, it's a zone. And there's different layers of fencing in various parts. And he had kind of um, started playing within the layer of the fence that put him uh, over by uh, US uh, American agents and a border patrol agent shot and killed him. And the court's uh, ruling today was about the question of whether the family can sue the agent, and the court said no. And so, you know, that really, I think, to most of us, constitutes total impunity when the family cannot seek any kind of um, satisfaction or redress for their child being shot.
1: Right, and and to be clear here, this is not... They're, they're not a jud- I just want everybody to understand what the, what, what what's that, what the, what the question is here. They're not adjudicating whether the, the guard had any guilt or, um, uh, you know, had done it with any intent. They're not making any judgment on that. They're just questioning whether the guard can actually be charged with anything or be held to account or can even go to court to have that question addressed. Yeah. They're
7: saying that the, the, Essentially, the family cannot sue in U.S. court. So they have they have no opportunity to seek any kind of justice. And 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 like and it doesn't you know, there's question in this case about whether the boy had thrown a rock. um, But but basically, as I understand it, it just came down. So I haven't read the whole thing yet. Um, They're saying it doesn't even matter whether, you know. Like even if there had been if, if it's it's contested whether anything had happened at all, but um, you know there's there's
1: you can't there's, even doesn 't matter yeah it doesn't even matter like the the facts in this case on some level don 't even matter because they can't be the court is saying that they're so above the law that they can 't even be. This question can't even be adjudicated. All right. Well, so yeah. um, we, we got a little ahead of ourselves, obviously, because, you know, we're we're, we're present day this. But let's talk um, about the Hart Seller Act. This is really in 1965. You write the the first, um, I guess, sort of recontemplation from uh, the National Origins Act as to how we treat immigration.
7: Yeah. So there's kind of two sides to seller. The side the sides that um, you hear most often is that this is like the opening up of immigration to the United States because, indeed, we do completely um, eliminate racial and national origin quotas. So the act reorganizes and basically says we're going to let people in on the basis of um, skills, family reunification, and then refuge, because at the time we didn't really have a separate refugee program. Um, so, in one sense, it's really um, just um, t- turning things around for the United States, opening up to immigration and opening up to immigration from everywhere in the world. And it had not—it had not been possible to legally immigrate um, from large portions of the world ever in, in United States history. So, this is a big change, going to allow immigration from African countries. Um, from lots of Asian countries, and it does change the demographics of the United States. The underneath story is, of course, of what some of the authors wanted. And it's interesting because, you know, it, underneath it, it's not a story about openness to racial change. It's a story about the fact that European immigrants were now considered white. and the, And some of the authors of the legislation were debating about how to stabilize the population in the United States and keep it white. And their theory was that family reunification, which is now the bane of the existence of people like Stephen Miller, they call it chain migration, family reunification was going to keep this country European origin white, because people would sponsor their family members from Germany and Ireland, which had been kind of incorporated into whiteness by that time, and that that would um, that would kind of stabilize demographically the United States. And, and some of their quotes are extremely openly racist about immigration from, the, from countries that turned out to actually be sources of immigration for the United States. Um, what you get almost immediately are lots and lots of people coming from, um, you get refugees coming from um, Southeast Asia, you get a large population of Vietnamese refugees Uh, just really demographically very different set of immigrants after 1965. So they were trying to keep the population white. But as often happens when when Congress tries to engineer the racial balance of the population, it completely backfires and we get the exact opposite of what they were trying to do.
1: Well, now Why? Why didn't they simply say we're just going to open up immigration, but just
7: to Europe? I think there was a a sense that it was unseemly, and that what you wanted to do was was do that in a facially neutral way, without seeming to discriminate. And you know, that's something that you see different versions of, especially during the Cold War, which you know, kind of attempt to not look like there's racism happening when there's racism happening. (laughs) Right. 1965. It's right in the middle of of a lot of civil rights reforms, and I, I think there's a sense that one should not, on the face of things, be saying we don't want immigrants for, you know, from country X or country Y, but definitely that was the sentiment of some of the authors of the legislation.
1: Well, certainly Stephen Miller and Donald Trump have learned that lesson on some level, haven't they?
7: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how, not so much with the facial neutrality they're pretty open with,
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is that they 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 um, they're aiming for a uh, wider immigrant uh, population and they're they're full on going for it. Right. I mean, isn't in part like what the. You know, uh, the the Muslim ban was ultimately about in some respects. They've expanded it and they said, oh, we can we can have our cake and eat it, too. We can uh, we as long as we expand to just people who are not white, uh, then we're not on the line for being anti-Muslim.
7: Yeah. I mean, there's some question in my mind about whether Stephen Miller is OK with any immigrant at all. But I think for most of the um, people to whom they're trying to appeal, this is the a coming out party for white nationalists and who have you know been operating under um kind of undercover for a really long time. Which, you know, one of the other stories I tell in the book is how influential people who wanted, you know, a white United States, a white nation, how influential they were in policy making 1965 is one example, but you know, you see a lot of um interest group activity trying to put a pretty nice shiny scientific face on white nationalism uh and starting especially in the nine you see it earlier but really ramps up in the 90s uh, particularly after the 19 you know the first attack on the world trade center in 1993
1: well let's uh, let's move up in terms of time now uh, you also write about family reunification that it <clears throat> that it is it's basically an outsourcing i mean you know I mean, part of this is premised on the idea that that immigration is good. And maybe on some level we need to sort of like, you know, restate that case for us. Um, because, yeah. yeah, why don't we do that? Because on some level, like, you know, um, like I say, Stephen Miller and Donald Trump are acting fairly rationally based upon their uh, desired outcomes here. At the very least, they've they you know, they have internalized the lesson of like. You know, maybe it's better for us not to uh, pretend so much that we aren't racist, uh, so that we can make sure that we get a racist outcome. Yeah, uh, I but, mean, but 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 make the case for immigration, or you know, at the very, I mean, the the I guess the the positive case for immigration.
7: Yeah, um, I mean, you know, there's lots and lots of good arguments we can make about free movement and human rights. In the case of the United States. We have practical interests at stake, and I don't think that we are entitled to the rest of the world meeting our practical needs. But it is the case that if we were to have fairly open immigration, we'd be much better off than we are with closed immigration. Uh, So there's a couple of different ways you can get at this argument. Um, One of the ways I I like to say – I like to remind my students in class the origins of borders were not – really just to keep kind of people, ordinary people out. They are often to keep ordinary people in because a population is one of the most important resources the country has. In the United States, our native-born population does not replace itself. Um, we, it, there's like a you know, number of births, I think like 2.1, 2.3 births per um, native-born woman at, to be at replacement level. We haven't met that standard for a long time. But we have managed to uh, to not shrink and age as a population in the way that countries in Europe, um, Italy, or Japan also have because we have had immigration into the country. So just in terms of having a labor force, um, having people who are both working and paying taxes, it's really important to for the United States to keep its borders fairly open. We rely on that. It's also the case that there's a, you know, Really big economic advantages, not just to having immigrants in the country, but in particular to having legal immigrants, so people with legal status and people who become citizens. Um, but particularly, being legal, having having authorization, because although undocumented immigrants, 40% of undocumented immigrants pay, not you know, state and federal taxes as well as um, you know, other other like taxes on things that they purchase in real estate. Um, but once you bump people all into legal status, they get paid better because they can't be exploited right. in the same way, and then they, they pay more taxes. So um, so there's there's there are those kinds of advantages that are really significant. You mentioned family reunification um, as an outsourcing, and like, you know, Republicans right now just love to hate on family reunification because they are pursuing openly racist policies. But in fact, you know, if we were to move, let's say, not to closing our borders, but to a points-based system, we're moving towards something that's similar to what Canada does. And Canada does not in any way um, only rely on a points-based system. So they have a very robust refuge program. But in Canada, they budget a lot of money that we don't budget for immigrant integration. So family reunification is a very like I say outsourced, it's a very um low cost way to get the work done that needs to be done when people come into the country from places um and and don't speak the language, don't know how to navigate the bus system, things like that.
1: And we should be clear, the <clears throat> the idea is that the family reunification obligates the family essentially to take care of this person who's coming in, in the event that they don't have resources or whatnot, and so that's yeah. that's where we're talking about, you know, outsizing outsourcing this or, or privatizing the costs. Although the benefits of this immigrant are socialized insofar as that they're ultimately going to pay taxes.
7: Yeah, uh, yeah. So if you're undocumented, it's it's very likely that you're paying taxes, but you can't take advantage of any of the things you pay taxes for because you're legally prevented from accessing those programs. So if you're undocumented, you'll be paying into Social Security if you're paying your taxes, which, like I said, 40% are. And you'll never, even if you were regularized, the money that you pay in while you're undocumented, you never see it. So we're, like, kind of cheating as U.S. citizens. We're taking that and not um, giving anything back. But if you're documented, then you're paying in uh even more most likely and your family is um responsible for uh, for making sure that um that like they 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 can vouch for the fact that you will be supported
1: um is that where uh and again I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit but the public charge law comes in to basically say okay yes we um uh once we try and uh <clears throat> quash family reunification and uh we no longer have you know essentially representatives or families of of people in this country who are agreeing to take care of uh, the immigrants, we will then quash um, the, the public charge uh, or, or use the public charge as a way of making sure that, OK, because we can't rely on families now to take care of our immigrants, we're only going to have rich people come in.
7: So... Of. I mean, you don't. We don't have to get rid of family reunification. For and public charge went into effect yesterday. The public charge rule. Um, we've yet to see really like how it's going to be used. But in its most restrictionist form, um, it would end almost all legal immigration to the United States because the formula for determining not whether someone has been a public charge. That's not what the formula is. The formula is for determining in the future would people um, be likely to become a public charge. And it is it is a really tough bar to meet, and there's lots of discretion involved, which is part of why people are worried that it will just end legal immigration. But, um, but yeah, you're going to have to be able to prove that you, you will not in any way um, in the future be become, um, eligible for, for, um, public, publicly supported programs. The thing is like, it's, it's a, it's a sensationalist thing in the sense that most of the programs that people like to talk about immigrants using, immigrants are not eligible to use and don't use. And when you get to the, you know, point of being undocumented, of course, people are not just afraid to use programs like that, um, they're ineligible for. They're afraid to like take their kids for stuff because they're afraid that that will expose their own status, even if their kids are eligible. So it's it's going to lead to bad health outcomes, bad educational outcomes, um, and and bad demographic outcomes. I think.
1: Um. Okay. So, uh, getting back to the history, I guess. Um, we go um uh, after the hart Seller Act. Um. In the 1980s, uh, do we really see any change in sort of the statutory framework of immigration? I mean, I know that we have um, uh, a—Reagan has a, you know, significant amnesty during that time. Yeah. Um, Are there any sort of like structural changes?
7: Um, You know, the amnesty is significant because it— it regularizes, allows a pathway to citizenship for a bunch of uh, legal short-term workers, people who have been here on short-term visas, and then also allows a, um, a bunch of undocumented workers who'd been continuously present in the United States since 1982 to regularize, and that's a big deal. Um, that also is the last Uh, Point at which we update something that had been like a very, very low key regularization program I talk about in the book since 1929 called registry just said, like, if you got here by a certain date and you've been in the country being a citizenly person, you become eligible. Um, So that's that's like the and then, of course, that's the first moment in which there are employer sanctions for employing undocumented workers, it had not been, um, there'd been no penalty before that for employers who were employing undocumented workers. There's not a lot of muscle, like Congress doesn't put a lot of money into enforcement, but you do start to see a real enforcement mentality surfacing in the 1980s, in some part connected to the war on drugs, which was um, Reagan's uh, less amnesty oriented. program and then in part because there was like a panic um uh, being being um fomented about undocumented immigrants let's
1: uh let's jump to uh the clinton administration and yeah. uh, the story of ms-13 in particular but uh, if there's anything else there that you think we should highlight um ms-13 obviously uh, played a big part in the 2016 election at least uh, in the context of, of donald trump's rhetoric um well, what was uh, what was the dynamic there with MS thirteen?
7: So, um, yeah. So, MS thirteen is a U.S. origin gang that um, is kind of like a lightning rod for both. I mean, in, in, for nativists, to be sure. Um, but you'd seen a lot of uh, people who'd been. In incarcerated as we started to do, engage in mass incarceration. Some folks who'd been incarcerated in the United States then deported, um, that really fed into the development of some um, pretty devastating gangs in Central America that then um, found their way back into the United States. And so you start to see that um, emerging a little bit as an issue. Clinton, I think the, you know, most important thing to identify about Clinton is what happened um in 1996. And in 1996, that's when you really see the it's the moment in which mass incarceration and mass deportation of immigrants in the United States, both documented and undocumented, that's becomes possible in a way it had never been possible before. We were incarcerating some people starting in the early 80s, um, but, like, what happens in 1996, two bills pass, um, same year that we pass uh, camps and get rid of welfare, and uh, what happens is that a kind of special category of something called a... um, an aggravated felony. So an ordinary felony is five-year serious offense, usually a violent crime, something quite, um, quite serious. Uh, 1996. Just for immigrants, really, just for non-citizens, this aggravated felony, which only has a one-year sentence, comes into existence. And... Um, We make detention mandatory for anybody who's committed an aggravated felony, but the crimes in some cases are so minor, like sometimes people aren't even serving any time for the actual crime, but they have to be detained. And then so that's this um, ADAPA uh, bill. Then we also get the um, Illegal uh, Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. It just adds a ton of tiny crimes to that. These would be misdemeanors for citizens, um, like met, like forgery, document fraud, bribery, you know, skipping bail, things like that. But now they they're subject to mandatory detention. They end up in deportation proceedings um, for misdemeanors, and th- they really also suffer a, a real reduction in the rights that they have to try and like get due process. So the deportation machine. Um, I, I think many people would date it to 1996 um, in Congress under Clinton.
1: And what was, what was that a response to? I mean, from politically, because I'm trying to remember in 96, you know, sort of the context in which that would come about. Was that just simply, you know, it's not uh, terribly uh, contested and so, um, um, you know, people can get away with it? Or is it, uh, is it a function of, 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 of you know, NAFTA or is it uh, what, what is what's going on there?
7: I mean, so Clinton, you know, had already been going after tougher enforcement on immigration a little bit earlier. So, like, um, policing some of the heavily crossed areas that were safe crossings to try and force people into the desert, um, you know, that had happened a few years earlier. I think there was a real turning point um, in the early 90s where there's some pretty active openly white nationalist organizations a bunch of which were headed by this guy, John Tanton, who just died last year, um, had been funded by um, Mellon Scaife and, and who were actively seeking to kind of change the laws to to reflect a more closed immigration policy and and white nationalist agenda. And they they motivated people first using 1993, but then you may remember that before we knew who had committed the 1995 terrorist attack in Oklahoma City. Um, a lot of people tried to pin it on uh, Islamic est- extremists. It was two white nationalists, in fact, who did it. Right. But it kind of like got people in this mindset of um, skepticism about immigration and immigrants that, that um, policy entrepreneurs were able to exploit.
1: And I guess, too, there was the rise of Pat Buchanan in the early 90s. And, and even on some level, you know, Ross Perot's run uh, may have sort of had some of those undertones a little bit.
7: This is a time of like, you know, it's, we're still in the war on drugs. There's this, you know, it wasn't as if mass incarceration of citizens was unpopular. We, you know, right. we were talking about super predators and like Clinton was friendly to that way of thinking about about um about law and law and order. And it's just incredibly consequential and expensive in all kinds of ways.
1: All right. Well, you, you, when you start to talk about reforms in the book, um, one of the things you do is you talk about the some of those 1996 laws. But let's start with the registry, which you had mentioned earlier. Uh, but but uh, in, 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 you can go really in any order you want in terms of when we talk about uh, the reforms that you're, um, you're uh, espousing. And I'm Curious as to also the genesis of some of these ideas of your reforms.
7: Um, I get the, the genesis is just like watching a country that that um, has an image of itself uh, as one thing behave like the totally opposite thing for a very long time. I've been watching and just kind of wondering um, why we have such a self-destructive and other destructive policy. But so I think to understand the. Reforms I'm suggesting, the one thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, what happens in 2003. Um, and so after the September 11th attacks in 2001, right. Congress freaks out and wants to reorganize the federal government. It's a huge reorganization undertaken really hastily that ends up creating the Department of Homeland Security. So they start. On and that everything right away. gets dumped
1: into the Department of Homeland Security. Like everything.
7: Just yeah, it's a it's it's just one of the biggest reorganizations of the federal government that's ever happened in the United States and it's done in a rush, really slipshod. Uh, Bush didn't actually want DHS to be elevated to cabinet level. He opposed that. He only went along with it when um it was presented to him as like this is going to happen. It passed by I think one vote. It was it's not popular. But it takes what had been Immigration and Naturalization Services, the INS, which had existed since 1932, breaks it up into several different agencies and reorganizes them under Homeland Security, ostensibly because we faced national security threats that were related to immigration. That turns out to be such a dishonesty, such an, an untruth, that if you look at the like the budget. You can see over time the budget going immediately pretty pretty quickly from national security stuff to enforcement and removals. Like it just was a deportation machine pretty shortly after it was created. But the, the ostensible, the line we were told was that somehow the southern border was responsible for security threats to the United States. It, like it's never happened. There's not any – Anything being shut down there that could have happened but didn't happen. But people have found prayer rugs
1: in the desert, isn't that true? I'm being facetious. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that was a uh, that was a big um, a little wound up. <laughs> that was a big yes. Um, I'm sorry about that. I get a little bit dry at times. No, that was that has been a. Um, I still feel like yeah. that is. I don't know if they're still running that same story every three weeks on Breitbart, but that was the uh, yeah. you know some soccer jerseys made turned of stronger
7: into, stuff than yeah. I am. If you can. Well, I actually went through some of the. Um, John Tanton's organizations are um, FAIR, federally, uh, Fair CIS, and Numbers USA. First two are actually have been classified by Southern Poverty Law Center as hate groups. And I looked at their data and like their attempts to show that there are security threats at the southern border, and like they can't, they just have nothing.
1: I mean the most um, recent anyway, version these- was was in the run up to twenty eighteen when Mike Pence was out there saying that we've caught you know seventy terrorists in the in, in the um uh in the caravan or wherever it was he was saying at one point,
7: yeah, look to see what they can pursue they're, i mean they're just there's just zero evidence um, and but you know we have these agencies since two thousand and three and they're immense. So we're, we're, we're giving just those agencies, just Customs and Border Protection and ICE, like over um, $20 billion uh, a year. And, um, you know, that doesn't even count the fact that they tend to overspend their budgets. That doesn't count the money that they're taking away from um, sometimes from Pentagon spending, like from other, other cabinet-level agencies. And, and like... We've already said to do what mostly um, to perpetuate this culture of impunity, but I, I I take readers through that story because it's really important to see like how hasty, how poorly thought out, and how um, costly those changes that were really reactionary emotional reactions to september eleventh um, how how they've been and i I say like three things I think you know we really need to do we need to. We need to create a way in the United States for people who have been here for a long time without authorization but have been citizenly um, to become authorized and become legal uh, residents of the United States. So what I do is I refer back to this old provision that goes back to 1929 and say, look, we used to say if you'd gotten here by a certain date, and you had behaved in a citizenly fashion, and we had you know, reasonable standards for that, um, that you were eligible to regularize, and we need to go back to that kind of system because what we have now in the United States is interesting. All of this enforcement, it starts just as the undocumented population starts to plateau and then decline. Just as unauthorized entries start to decline, just as apprehensions at the border start to decline. And we are in that position now. You would never know it from reading the news. But that's where we are, and, and we're spending all this money. So we um, have this population of people in the United States, many of whom have now been here for a long time because we're not constantly renewing with tons of new undocumented immigrants. We need to give them a way to become citizens. Um, so that's one of the policy suggestions I make. I think we need to um, dismantle what was done in 2003. DHS, ICE, um, and CBP really, really are dysfunctional. Um, and, and we need to go back to an, an organization that is mostly a kind of welcome mat services to help people um, navigate the process of being in the United States when they weren't born here.
1: Uh, The book is Illegal, How America's Lawless Immigration Regime Threatens Us All. Elizabeth F. Cohen, thanks so much for your time today. We'll put a link of that book at majority.fm. Thanks so
7: much.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
7: All right, folks.
1: Interesting stuff. Immigration.
2: Immigration is definitely one of my bailiwick's. So it's always interesting to get a new perspective on it. Um, I've tended to approach it more in through the lens of labor history, uh, it, with people like Daniel Denver and Justin Acres Ducone. But the racial stuff is definitely part of it too. NAFTA played an interesting role, actually. If you'd like to hear about it in brief, sure. Um, So the crackdowns on illegal immigration in the 90s, in the Clinton era, were due to all of the factors that she said, as well as a way to assuage fears that NAFTA would cause a wave of immigration into the U.S. that we were not equipped to handle. At least that's what I got from uh, reading Daniel Denver's book. some people portray the push for more open borders as part of a neoliberalism, but that's just not true. And I'm talking about open borders for people, not for capital.
1: What was the fear that uh, there'd be more immigrants here? Because the, the, big, the big fear, as I recall in the time, was the giant sucking sound as all the jobs actually go to Mexico.
2: Yeah, it's strange, right? Because Janet Reno initially sold NAFTA as a way to decrease immigration. But what NAFTA actually did was it drove people off of their farms and into cities looking for work and ultimately drove many more illegal border crossings. And you can't yes. you can't have US companies exploiting people in Mexico and places like the Maquila zone if people are not then trapped in Mexico, right? The immiseration is what drives the immigration. It did not do what they said it was going to do. In fact, it did the exact opposite.
1: Well, Part of it was, too, that you had the uh, U.S. corn 50% cheaper in Mexico than Mexican corn.
2: Yeah, they flooded the markets with cheap corn. They drove subsistence farmers off of their land. Basically, everything that the Zapatistas predicted would go was going to happen has come true. Um, Also, a way that criminalization of migration has functioned, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it's functioned as a way to police labor populations, divide up workers, and Keep every keep wages for U.S. born workers and non-native workers
1: low.
3: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the T.A. workers who are, were let go because of the strike. Um, where was this at? Um,
1: UC uh, Santa Cruz. I
3: think they were threatened with like, you know, part of your uh, status yeah. being here is contingent on you being employed yeah, as a faculty. A That's TA. a nice
1: little way to yep. control people.
2: We're watching it happen in real time still.
1: <clears throat> All right. Well, folks, we got to take a break, head into the fun half just a reminder this program relies on your support when you become a member you not only get the free half free of commercials you also get extra content virtually every single day of the year not every single day certainly not the weekends and not every single uh weekday but i'd say 98 percent, and we should really actually run the numbers on something like that but um Go to jointhemajorityreport.com, sign up. Join us tonight for our live debate coverage. This is something that what we'll do is we'll probably like the live debate coverage. We will now, uh, we'll we'll shoot it on video and then we'll upload it for members and you'll be able to watch it in the app. Damn, right? Uh, we've got other uh, members uh, benefits coming uh, shortly too uh, en route via that app. Uh, don't forget, check out, uh tmbs which was last night not tonight michael brooks show uh because of the uh, debate they they did it last night who was on that show do you remember matt you were here right uh yeah ben dixon and richard wolf uh richard
3: wolf was in studio so we talked about ben dixon about his ongoing campaign uh against michael bloomberg and uh talked to richard wolf about marxism and socialism and the labor theory of value
1: dude's the bloomberg slayer
3: yes i mean ben dixon really um I mean, how much money do you think Bloomberg would have to spend to undo the damage just done by Ben Dixon's Twitter account? No
1: kidding, right? (laughs) And Ben could have probably just gone to Bloomberg and said, hey, dude. Um, He would never, though. No, that's the thing I like about Ben. Um, Well, there's other things I like about him, too. It wasn't specifically like I met him and I'm like, you're the type of guy who would never sell out to Michael Bloomberg. Um, Folks, also uh, check out uh, Nomiki Kant's. Uh, new show, The No McKee Show. When I don't have to say her last name, I can say her first name, right? Somebody keeps, keeps getting dogging me on Twitter about it. The No McKee Show. And also, if you're in L.A. and we're trying to work out a simulcast situation, but she is doing a show in L.A. for Super Tuesday. And so if you're in L.A., uh, check that out. If you go, uh, I think, to her uh, Twitter feed, Maybe there's a URL for it. But she's going to be here tonight, so she'll tell us then. Uh, but uh, she's doing a live show in L.A. David Dan's going to be on it. Michael Brooks, apparently, is uh, headed out there to do that show. Doing live shows, wow. Yeah. Live shows are the thing now. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess for the kids. The oldies don't do that, though. Sometimes. We'll do one. We'll do a live show. We got one coming up on Election Day, folks. And you know what? The rookies do like an hour live show or a two-hour live show or a three-hour live show or a four-hour live show. Plus let, the me tell you what the, let me tell you what the pros do. They do a 12-hour live show. Yeah. Yeah. On election day, which is also our 10-year anniversary, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, so check out uh, the Noma Key show on, um, on Patreon.com. Uh, Jamie.
2: This week on the Antifada, I speak with Faye Eckler, Vice President and Founding Member of the Socialist Rifle Association, about gun control, mutual aid, community defense, and why it's a good idea to have an armed lift. Now, I will admit to being kind of conflicted about gun control myself— I'm still not totally sure what the correct socialist position is on gun control, but Faye made some very convincing arguments in favor of responsible gun ownership and having an armed left in a country that is already in gun- awash in guns in guns, and has an armed right. So food for thought. Things to chew on. Um, check it out. Patreon.com slash The This is uh,
3: Michael Bloomberg is defending uh, going Scott Brown over war and because of Scott Brown's gun control. uh bipartisanship so wait what's that michael bloom there's new talking points from the bloomberg campaign because he supported scott brown over warren and bloomberg saying he did that because of uh, reciprocity on uh some gun control stuff or something so oh
1: he's claiming that scott brown was gonna do uh, a gun
3: control bipartisan guy so that's why he supported him over Warren,
1: right which makes all the sense in the world because we know that scott brown was a vote against the republican party um incidentally folks Scott Brown was the, uh, would have been, Elizabeth Warren would have been the 60th vote uh, in the, uh, oh, no, no, wait, I'm thinking of uh, Coakley, his race against Coakley. When you vote for a Republican, and this is what, you know, Bloomberg is going to have to address when it comes to why he gave $4 million to to, to Toomey in in, uh, Pennsylvania, Uh, never mind the money he gave to Rick Snyder, who poisoned all those uh, folks in Flint, Michigan, and more, But when you support, and I don't care if it's Michael Bloomberg or, I don't know, Emily's List or whomever. I think Emily's List may have supported Collins in the past. I'm not sure about that. Sometimes they make some choices that I think are very bad. When you support a Republican, particularly in the Senate, you give power to the Republican Party. It doesn't matter what that individual does. Because the Republican Party is going to protect the NRA. So when Mike Bloomberg says that, what he's saying is, I'm not going to say that. What he's saying is, "Hi, here, here is a bag of crap that I'm selling you that is actually a bag of gold." I was going to say something about him doing something horrible in his mouth or something. I, wasn't gonna say, I, I don't know why. I get, I get, am a little bit <laughs> agitated. Uh, so here it is um, uh, Jack Pfeffer there's been a question floating as to why Mike Bloomberg supported Scott Brown in a Senate race over Elizabeth Warren response Mike Bloomberg supported Scott Brown in Massachusetts for many reasons one of the biggest being Scott's willingness to buck the NRA well, let's hear some of the others too maybe. and his party yeah, to oppose concealed carry reciprocity that would have allowed people with gun permits in other states to carry hidden handguns in New York City Mike Bloomberg they, they, uh, Scott Brown's Opposition to that was irrelevant. Bloomberg has continued to fight for say, yeah, yeah, okay. In other words, open wide. I'm going to shovel it in. Sorry.
3: Don't piss down my leg.
1: Yeah, good point. All right, did
3: you want to say something, Matt? Oh, yeah, check out Literary Hangover, folks. Don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. Exactly, where I, don't tell you, where I don't piss down your back.
1: That's right. That's one of the best things about that show. You can listen to it and nobody pisses on your back. Don't even piss down your front. Nope. Folks, see you in the fun half. Left is fast. Jamie and I may have a disagreement. Yeah, you can't just say whatever you want about people just because you're rich. I have an absolute right to mock them on YouTube.
0: He's up there buggy whipping like he's the boss. I am not your employer. You know, I'm tired of the
1: negativity. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. You're nervous, you're a little bit upset, you're riled up. Yeah, maybe you should rethink
5: your defense of that, you fucking idiots.
1: We're just going to get rid of you. All right. But dude. 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 Uh, you want to smoke this joint yes <laughs> do you feel like you are a dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> some good shit exactly i'm happy now it's a win-win it's a win-win-win uh hell yeah now listen to me two three four five times eight four seven nine oh six five oh one four five seven
0: two thirty eight 56, 27, one-half, five-eighths, 3.9 billion. Wow. He's the ultimate math nerd. Don't you see?
4: Why don't you get a real job instead of spewing vitriol and hatred, you left-wing limbo? Everybody's
1: taking their dumb juice today. Come on, Sammy. Dance, dance, dance.
5: Ooh.
1: My first post-coital scene with uh, a woman. I'm hoping to add more moves to my repertoire. All I have is the dip and the swirl.
8: Fine, we can double dip.
1: Yes, this is a perfect moment. No. Wait, what? You make under a million dollars a year. You're scum. You're nothing. Excuse me? Fuck you, you fucking liberal elite. I think you belong in jail.
9: Thank you for saying that, Sam. You're a horrible, despicable
1: person. All right, gonna take a quick break. I want to take a moment to talk to some... Of the libertarians out there. Take whatever vehicle you want to drive to the library. What you're talking about is gibber jab. Classic. I'm feeling more chill already. Good. Donald Trump can kiss
0: all of our asses.
8: Hey, Sam. Hey, Andy. Are you guys ready to uh, do some evil?
0: Hitler was such an idiot. You think like I might uh, be
5: a Nazi?
2: Agreed. No.
5: Death to America. <laughs>
8: You. yes
1: wow wow that's weird no way unbelievable this guy's got a really good hook throw our hands <laughs>
8: But Sam, i got to get off. No worries.
1: Let's, let's, I want to just flesh this out a little bit. I mean, look, it's a free speech issue. If you don't like me. Hey, 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 shut
9: up. Thank you for calling into the majority report. Sam will be with you shortly.
1: Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Uh, let's go right to the phones. Uh, you uh, are calling from a 215 area code. Uh, Who is this? Where are you calling from?
6: Hi, Sam. It's Mindy. Mindy! Hi, how are you?
1: I'm well. How are you?
6: They're killing me. I came out as a Bernie. (laughs) Hell yeah, that deserves a drop. I, I came out on Twitter as a Bernie. I always kept my majority report on my Twitter separate. So I came out as a Bernie on majority, I mean, on Twitter. Yeah. And I... I lost like 2,000 followers. They're like, and not even the following. Forget the following. I don't give a shit about the following. But they're like so mean. The people are so mean. They say the Bernie bros are mean. The Biden people, the Warren people, the Bloomberg people are so mean. Well, they're it, killing me, Sam. I don't know what to do.
1: Well, I would say, I mean, my recommendation would be to uh, hop off Twitter for a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean you know this is um the the uh, you know the primary season is is nasty it's nasty it was nasty in 2004 I was very happy that um I wasn't on the radio until basically the end of the primary season uh 2008 it was um I still feel like I get uh, mean emails from pumas uh to this day um uh, 2016 obviously super nasty um and the only thing i would say is um that you know this stuff obviously it goes uh every direction everybody uh, you know who uh people who support bernie uh, say like you should see uh, look we've gotten some uh, emails from uh, the k hive which, oh, which i had no idea worst. i mean look everybody's the worst and uh, I want to reiterate what I said yesterday is, um, and I think, you know, there was a story in the Daily Beast about uh, a a low level, I don't mean to denigrate, I mean, he was a field director in a, um, you know, in, in a, I think it was in Michigan, um, who, uh, a guy who had a, a Twitter feed that was private, I mean, three to 4,000 people, I mean, I don't know if it's, I would call that. It was locked. Let's put it that way. It wasn't broadcasting uh, to the public at large, but it was four thousand people. I can't imagine he knew all of them, and uh, and obviously somebody um, you know sort of took screen grabs and and reported. And basically, what he was doing was you know the functional equivalent of the you know the sort of uh, satire or or, or, you know uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, Shit posting, they call it. And it's it was more like. Yeah, no, it was wasn't really money. trolling. It was really just sort of like comedy, nasty comedy. Trolling's meant for it was. Oh, sorry. Right. Sorry. Tweet's
2: okay, fairly okay, like typical of like funny gay leftist Twitter.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, it's like not...
3: Like Gay's the wick. What, yeah, I
2: mean...
5: Like just
1: the wick. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know who any of these people are. But the point being, okay. the point being is that like, look, um, and I thought uh, Bashkir Sankara had the best uh, sort of tweet on it. When you are affiliated with a campaign, whether you like it or not, you're affiliated with a campaign. And if you're going to talk that way and you're going to uh, you know, say that stuff, it's, it's going to reflect on the campaign. That's just sorry. That's just the way things work. And right. you need to be aware it, that that's the case which doesn't mean that the story in and of itself was really anything other than useless to me it was like basically a project veritas thing we found one guy it was easy no it's even actually like less than that cuz this guy was doing this obviously it was comedic and um in and, and, and Boscar's uh, tweet was basically um um playing off of Natalie Schur's, which is campaign staffers shouldn't shit should shitpost. And the campaign was in a tough spot, had to let him go, et cetera. But it's also true that framing a gay organizer's bitchy gossip from a locked account as an urgent news story that undermines redistributive politics is lame as hell. And Boscar said, yes, exactly. If you're part of a political campaign, you don't get free speech. You need to be more disciplined than the rest of us. But if you're a journalist or editor pretending this was a legitimate story, you're worthy of contempt. I think both those things are true. And you can't control what the editors or journalists does. Um, and so, you know, um, just as you've experienced. And, and look, right. You're not saying like random Twitter, Twitter peoples. You know, you associate it with the campaigns that these people are supporting. And that's just the reality of this. And so, you know, I would say, take a break from Twitter so you don't drive yourself crazy and just know that, like, you know, listen, I'll tell you what I would tell Saul. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt you.
6: No, no, Sam, you're missing the point. I don't care that they're yelling at me. I don't care that they're hurting my feelings or they're being mean to me. The point is that, I mean... I don't have a huge Twitter following, but I seem to have good substantive conversations with people, and I don't have any Bernie followers. So because I don't have any Bernie followers, I can't talk to anybody about this because I can't talk to anybody at home about this because they're all not Bernie followers because Aww. everyone at home...
3: You're left best follower of Mindy. Yeah.
2: I am a powerful poster what? in the Bernie community, as are all of us, I think. I will retweet you and get you some Bernie followers who I'm sure
6: just will be very happy out. to Tell be your friends.
3: Yeah. No. I mean, I mean we also like, value I mean, your what? links to those people. Yes, what? we do. We value your links to those people as well. So
1: we'll... That's actually far more yeah. valuable than anything else. Yeah. I mean, look, you lost 2,000, but how many did you start to make think like, hey, wait a second, yeah. maybe I should recontemplate. You know, maybe I should think about this a little bit more. That's the important thing. That's where that's the work you're doing well, I tweeted, Sam. I tweeted about your show this morning.
6: I saw that yes. I, I picked up like hundred and fifty followers. and then people are telling me that Crystal Ball's a Republican. And they're all screaming about her. And then
1: well, she's not a Republican,
6: uh, like, yeah, I, I, I tweeted She about literally
1: ran and, for Congress as a it. Democrat. What? She works with one. She, she ran as a
6: Democrat, right?
1: She literally ran for Congress as a Democrat.
6: Yeah, so just read the comments on that. People are no, so ill I'm Very last thing I'll tell you. I was what? in a diner last night with my 84-year-old mother and my husband, and there was a woman that was two booths over that was somewhere between my age and my mother's age. And she was schooling her girlfriend, who was somewhere between my age and my mother's age, on why they need to vote, and they absolutely 100% have to vote for Bloomberg, because if they don't, Bernie is going to take everyone down. So, I mean, my husband was, like, holding me back. And he's like, Mindy, shut the fuck up. Don't go near her. Like, you're going you're gonna to ruin her, like, uh, early bird special. Just leave her alone. <laughs> so, of course, I had to go to the... Well, no, he was like, because he's not really as political as me. And he knew, like, my face was turning around the colors. And my mother's, like, hearing aid was like, she couldn't even understand what was going on. But... um I got up, and I said, I have to go to the bathroom. They knew where I was going. And I went over to her, and I tried to educate her for 10 minutes at her table. And I think, you know, I got through to her a little bit. but or maybe,
1: she <laughs> are... maybe she had to go. No, maybe she had to pay no, the no. t- people. Yeah, go
6: ahead. No, these people are so, the older people that are my age and older are so programmed to think the establishment is progressive. Like, they're so—I cannot explain to you what it's like for me to talk to people. I mean, I literally am blocking my girlfriends that are Democrats on, on my phone because they're, like, sending me Bernie Russia articles. Like, they're so mad at me that it's just—I it's just I just think that—I don't know. Is he going to get my age group, suburban, white, Jewish women or educated? Well, I mean, that, I to be honest with you,
1: listen— the fact is, is that Bernie is weakest with that cohort, which was in a which was a key cohort in the 2018 election. Um, suburban women, both white and black, were key cohorts to come out in the 2018 election, and it is a problem. And that is why, um, Mindy. You're such an important ambassador uh, to that community. It's also, I I mean, I mean, it's also why. I mean, I don't
6: want you to think I'm self. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, like I'm, you know, self grandizing. But no, uh, you know, I think I have, I think I have like a mid-level influencer um, platform, and I think if I can turn,
1: Mindy, you're literally in ground zero. Like one of the challenges that Bernie ha- will have if he wins the, the primary in the general election is apparently supposedly the fracking ban in, in Pennsylvania. I, don't, I haven't looked at the numbers enough to know that, but right. what he is definitely going to need you and your friends. And look, now, there's there's multitude uh, wait, of tax. Hold on, Listen hold
6: to on. Me. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. I have been DMing Fed. Everybody on their team that Ari well, guy, okay. I have I emails. I would I, would, I would, I mean, they may have other people. things that
1: they really got to get doing. But uh, I, I, I mean, I,
6: they're not. They won't. They won't contact me back. Like I'll do anything. All right, Well, Mindy, Mindy, Mindy,
1: Mindy, Mindy, Mindy. You're you're DMing literally the top three or four people in the campaign, and they probably have a lot on their plate. What I'm suggesting to you is that maybe you do something that's a little bit more localized or, you know, listen. That's why I have
6: 95,000
1: followers. Well, I know, 95,000 people, I understand. But if, if you told me they were all from your district in, in Pennsylvania, I would say, okay, now wait a second. We're on to something. And if they were all sort of like, you know. Uh, similarly situated as yourself, I, I would say you're on to something. But you know, ninety-five thousand people is a lot of people. But don't get don't get too I carried away. I understand that. They're dealing with a hundred and ten million people. You know, when they're looking at this well, campaign, I could take, so I could,
6: I could maybe you know sway a lot of Pennsylvania people if you know. I
5: mean, well, I but there's no reason why, why you can't but... do this,
1: Mindy. There's no reason why you can't do this. Now, the tax that you can take are going to be contingent upon the people you're talking to. You're you're now an educator, right? And you meet the student where the student is. And so if the student is worried that Bernie is going to, you know, uh, radically fundamentally change uh the country, you can say no, what Bernie's going to be doing is going to be pushing progressive policies. And to the extent that uh, the Democrats have any power, they're, frankly, the, a lot of the Democrats are not as progressive as he is. The Republicans are not. And if Bernie doesn't get these proposals through, which is very possible, the one thing he will do is he will make it clear to the rest of the country that the problem is the Republicans. You know, it's not going to get caught up in in sort of like vague negotiations about uh, will you cut parts of Social Security? He's going to lay it out there. We want to expand Social Security. We want to we want to expand Medicare. We want to. You should hear the argument, Sam. The arguments are like,
6: what's the point of voting for him? Because he's not going to get Medicare. I just told you.
1: Well, I just gave you the answer.
6: I, I just, know, I know, I know. I'll, all right, I'll try to be... Well, the answer is, the answer is, is that finally, to, if he
1: does not, if he does not get this stuff through, the difference is, is that unlike during the Obama years, where Obama lost a thousand down ticket seats across the country, statewide elections and whatnot, the difference is that when Bernie, if he doesn't get any of this stuff through, it's going to be quite clear who the people who are stopping it are. And that has value. It doesn't have value the next day for Medicare for all, but it has value two years down the road, four years down the road for Medicare for all. It will make it clear where everybody stands. And part of the reason why we have the the situation we have is that there's been a lack of accountability with our politicians and part of the reason why there's been a lack of accountability is because there has been a reluctance by the Democrats to lose in a way that makes it clear where everybody stands. Right,
6: right, right. And right. so they even want, if they Bernie wants want the Chris Kuhn that day,
1: exactly. And even if Bernie does not get these proposals through, right. and there's no reason to believe that, frankly, you know, Joe Biden's going to be able to get his plan through any more or less than Bernie will get his plan through. But, or, <laughs>
6: His plan. His plan is to be well, whatever. So it doesn't matter. Twice. My
1: point is, is that there's there are structural realities that are going to prevent a Democratic president from getting stuff through. But the point <laughs> is, who who is going to lose in a fashion if if they do lose? Who's going to lose in a fashion that is going to set up a victory down the road? And that's well, a Bernie really just pushed. Bernie pushed all the
6: all the all the candidates to the left i mean he did a good job with that they're all you know he just did a really good job but oh i want to say one thing to to uh Julie, right. I, I i'm just listening keep watching like, you american psycho that. you what American like i just keep watching christian bale and american psycho <laughs> and i just keep laughing and thinking of you. and laughing and thinking of you uh, right like um, pete hmm? okay. i said right Right? Is he just saying he's like an ugly okay, person now? All right. We, get,
1: we got a lot of stuff to cover. We're in the middle of a major primary All right. uh, campaign. Uh,
6: Mindy. So that's it. I just wanted to tell you that if you, last thing, if you guys could give me any help, it's not a vanity project. I just like to, I get my message out. And people like, I do feel like I do get people to listen to my side. So um, if you could just get the message out, then I'm a Bernie. What's the and Twitter And Bernie feed? people follow me so I can have support. I would, it would, it would make my cause a little easier. Okay. Oh, Mindy, What's the we feed? will introduce you
2: to lots of fun Bernie friends that you're really going to love if you keep on doing the Lord's work and talking to your people. What's the Twitter I'm going to talk to
6: my people. Just get Bernie people to follow me and I'll be great. Okay.
2: All right. What's your Twitter handle?
6: Uh, um, it's Jamie and then
5: my Twitter handle. Come on. Oh, um, the It's
6: audience, main day, main day, Mindy 9 Mayday,
1: M A Y. Mindy, M I N D Y. Nine. Mayday, okay. Mindy. Mayday.
6: Right, uh, follow me, okay. Mindy. Mindy. Thanks, Mindy. Bye. Uh, I met a guy Appreciate
1: the call. <laughs> Appreciate the call. I mean, we can't. I mean, it's. I, think I need to good. have
2: her on the antifada. Gonna stay
1: on point. Gonna stay on point. Yeah, have her on.
2: <laughs> I want to keep talking to her.
1: Oh boy, who oh, boy? All right, I'll take uh, one more uh, quickie here. Calling from a oh, shoot. 847 area code. Who's this? Where are you calling from?
10: Hey Sam, it's Josh from Chicago.
1: Josh from Chicago. Uh
10: I was in South Carolina this weekend.
1: Ah. And how is it this time of year?
10: Uh it's uh, nice. It was you know sixty degrees. A little chilly for my taste, you know, my taste, but uh I can't complain, Sam, you know.
1: I no can't complain. I know. All right, so what's the, what's it look like?
10: So, yeah, we were, um, we went to a lot of, um, on Sunday, we went to a, a very rural, um, area, <clears throat> um, like really far, like about 45 minutes out of Rock Hill, which is where we were. Um, and it's, you know, it's not easy to canvas cause you know, it's fires driving, um, houses are very far apart. It's not hard. It's hard to tell where addresses are. It's a primarily, I mean, black, um, area where we were, um, or, or there was primarily black voters we were talking to and response was really positive. Um, we met one woman who was, uh, I think a Clinton voter in 2016. And she's a you know, middle-aged sort of uh, working class uh, black woman. And she was really excited uh, that we were there. She was really excited about Bernie and she was uh, really excited to go and vote for Bernie on, um, uh, next, on Saturday. And um, we were just like, the thing that I was, is that a the Styer support there is actually not very, um, it's not very solid. Um, I know he's been polling and mm. like you know in like under Bernie but like above the viability mark, and I actually think he's like it's basically based on like sort of ad ad recognition, um, and I also don't think Biden's ground game is very very strong, and he's not reaching those voters that we were talking to, and I think just in general for me it was actually kind of very humbling. Uh, because this is a place that Bernie lost by, like, 75 points in 2016. And for us to sort of be welcome in this area and for people to be considering Bernie, a lot of these people who didn't vote for Bernie in 2016. For them to be considering Bernie was actually, like, I think, a kind of, like, humbling experience, I think, for, for me and for, like, a lot of people. And I also, we also went to, like, a suburban, the suburbs of Charlotte, because Charlotte's right on the border between South Carolina and North Carolina. And it was sort of area that I expected... Pete and Warren and Amy To be sort of very uh, Have a lot of name recognition And the undecided voters that we were talking with A lot of them were considering Bernie and that's not Typically where Bernie's base is Um, These are sort of more Affluent white Suburbanites who were you know liberal But like um, they were I think Especially after Nevada they were Considering Bernie and so I just I think to me I think Bernie has a very Good shot at it's not winning South Carolina coming within a point. And I think it's sort of like negligible after that. I would also just encourage, encourage people who are like calling into South Carolina. And even if you're going there, I think there has to be sort of like a difference. We kind of had, I noticed that I had to check myself as someone who's a member of BSA, because I realized I was also canvassing people who were interested in Bernie and who liked Bernie, but might not have like my same sort of socialist beliefs or whatever. And I would also just encourage, like, especially, like, people who are talking about, like, Bernie or Bust, maybe save that till, like, after Super Tuesday when the South votes. Um, we actually were able to get a um, our lip driver to switch from Biden to Bernie when he asked if all of us would, like, vote for the nominee, and we all said yes, um, except for Bloomberg, obviously. But, I mean, to me, I think, like, I think it's fine for people to be Bernie or Bust if they want to be, but I think – Sort of spreading that attitude, especially when South Carolina and other um, Super Tuesday states down south, where Bernie didn't do well and he's now surging, are about to go, might not be like the best um, thing. So that was just sort of like my observation down there, especially in South Carolina. But, Josh, no, he's got a really good chance.
1: Appreciate yeah. the call. Hope you're right. Thanks, man. Yeah, hey, I guess he hung up on me. Um, all right, I'll take one more. Let's see what we got here. Got a lot of people hanging on. I didn't take any calls yesterday. Call from an 832 area code. Where are you calling from? Who's this?
11: Uh, hello, Sam. This is a uh, disgraced former mayor, Pete Buttigieg, calling from South Bend, Indiana. Is... Uh, well, you know, I saw your little show yesterday.
1: Yeah, little.
11: And uh, we, have a, we have a saying in South Bend. It goes like this. You think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark, Sam. I was born in it, molded <laughs> by it. Wait. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. By then, it was nothing to me but blinding, blinding like those cell phones. The shadows betray you.
1: Wait a second, dude. So
11: they belong to me, Sam.
1: Dude, I this is from Batman. <laughs> That's, Bane said that. I've been that.
11: accused of plagiarism. I may have been accused of plagiarism. <laughs> All right? But I did not steal that speech from Barack Obama. Well, from a little character called Bane.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, no, I heard that. Yeah, that was Bane. Uh, but, you know, actually, I'm glad you called. Um, I was going to say I was going to say your voice sounded a little deeper than I recall, too. But um, here's this. Uh, and now that we have you I'm on the line. A large
11: mask on my face.
1: <laughs> I used to do it, baby. <laughs> do you remember that? I used to do I one. I forget
3: why we used to do I don't that. remember <laughs> why
1: I used to do that either. But hold on for one second. I'm glad uh, that uh, um, Mayor um, uh, Pete Benetage, uh called in because uh, I had a question about this. Who pulled this? Oh, the, 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 the the Circus? That show? <laughs> what was I don't it? know. B-Town? Um, the Recount. Oh, The Recount. I don't know. Some show. Uh, And they uh, I just want you to listen to this. This is a um, a a, a, a video of a speech that Pete Buttigieg gave and one that Barack Obama gave uh, running at the same time. It's actually a compilation of stuff. Here we go.
9: The way we do do every other election by giving it to the person who got the most votes. Just Just a a thought. thought. Brings us because
3: together. This, now, country this country was built. And it is a pools, movement reaching in into church basements
8: and barbers and, barber and shops, in our schools and universities and, and in with our halls. kids. And if the if boys, we can we line up, up the neighborhoods and we can, can line up the city. shines Shining, as, a as a beacon around the world. the world once more. And, and this, this is, is our, our chance, chance to, to answer that call. <laughs> <laughs> now,
1: those are brief little snippets, and I suppose, you know, I say the word and. And I know a lot of other people do too. I say, folks. And I say, folks. And I don't think that they're they're necessarily uh, copying me. But uh, um, what do you have to say to that, Pete Buttigieg? Uh,
6: actually,
11: I've moved uh, the phone over to my friend Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, Barack Obama. Let me be clear. You need to ask you. Need to answer the question. Do you feel in charge right now, Sam? Do you feel in charge? <laughs> Is that is that a Batman reference? Uh, they only let you watch one film while you're in the uh, Oval Office. That's... Very very busy job. I don't know if you know about that. Today.
5: No,
1: I, I didn't know realize. know about that. I didn't, you have all your references are from Batman.
11: <laughs> I'm, I'm here to talk about something much more important than Batman now. There's a there's a podcast called Pod Damn America. Okay? Now let me be clear. Okay. They're doing a live variety show at Caroline's Comedy Club on Super Tuesday, Tuesday, March 3rd. You absolutely must not go to this live variety comedy show featuring Ted Alexandro and Kate Willett. You right. absolutely must not buy tickets in advance.
0: We have this... a little
11: saying. We have a little saying, South Bend. yeah, We don't damn America. We stand America.
1: Oh, I see. Okay, you don't damn America, you stan America. Is, is this Jake Flores? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Sam. How's it going? <laughs> that was pretty good. I mean, your your Obama's better than your Buttigieg, I gotta say. Uh, but your your Bainajig is the best I've ever heard.
11: Thank you. I was going to do it like through a gas mask, but I didn't think the phone would... Uh, right? This is a half-assed attempt.
1: No, I thought that was pretty good. And so, wait a second. So, you're doing a show on uh, on at Caroline's on on Tuesday? This whole thing, all we're doing is advertising other people's shows on oh Tuesday.
5: Nice.
11: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, me and my podcast, Pod Damn America, featuring Alex Patak and Anders Lee, are doing a live, big old variety show at Caroline's on Super Tuesday where, uh, you know, we're going to watch the results and do all sorts of, uh, you know, segments and sketches and things. And I need to put some asses in seats. So,. Uh, Thank you for letting me hijack your show, Sam.
1: All right. Well, uh, anytime, uh, folks. And where can they get uh, tickets? At the Caroline's website or something?
11: Caroline's website. That's right. Oh, all right.
1: That makes sense. Well, uh, Jake Flores, ladies and gentlemen, from uh, Poddam Pod Damn America. America.
2: We did our, uh, our live show together with Poddam America, and they were all very excellent. So I can only imagine how they're going to be when they don't have me dragging them down.
1: Mm. Mm. Hi, Jamie. all right thanks for calling jake um all right folks we'll put a link up for you how's that
5: thank you
1: and we should do that for a Nomi show in la because they're not competing their shows two shows uh and you know we only have like uh three tickets to sell for ours uh here uh because that's all the room (laughs) we have on the couch so i think it's uh, like a uh press box or yeah it's, it's just the press box that's it um all right let's go over uh some of this. Uh let's play this uh Joe Biden clip. Uh, folks, we have an announcement to make. This is going to be I I'm I'm as as about to say the words like I don't I, I hate to say never say never.
0: words great, Jack.
1: Okay, Jack. Um this will maybe be the last type of Joe Biden clip we play of this ilk. Right? Because Um, you know, we'll see what happens in South Carolina. If Joe Biden pulls away by 10 or 12, uh, uh, percentage points, then maybe we have to get back on this case. Now we're going to still do drops. You have a drop policy, right? Why don't you state that Matt? Well, we don't want any of the
3: ones that show sort of cognitive decline, um, but like the ones that, so for instance, him saying, um, oh gosh, we're running out of, (laughs) um, he said,
1: Come on, man. That one we're going to do. We'll do come on, man. And we'll do uh, bless me, father. Yeah, come hmm. on, man. Yeah, we'll still do that. But uh, the cognitive decline, uh, Joe Biden. uh,
0: Bless me, father, if I have sinned. uh,
1: Those videos, those drops, they're going to end after we play this one. Uh, This is our fine. This is our swan song, as it were. Um, But, uh, you know, look. You're on the campaign trail. It's exhausting. And some of your muscle memory kicks in from when you ran for the Senate 22 years ago. Was it 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, it was certainly in the aughts, maybe. So maybe it was 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, the but the issue is ultimately is like, It's going to get a lot tougher than this, and the stakes are going to be a lot higher because he's going to have to, if he wins the uh, nomination. Here he is in South Carolina, not doing himself any
0: favors. You're the ones that sent Barack Obama the presidency, and I have a simple proposition here. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over if you like what you see. Help out if not. Vote for the other by. Give me a look though, okay? That's all I really got to say to you. I'm about
1: the other by. The other by? Did he say vote for the other by? The other guy. The other guy. He went into uh, just a automatic pilot mode. I guess he could
3: have said if I was going to spin this, um, I would have said he meant to say from the Senate but not for the Senate. I'm a candidate from the Senate, from the Senate, which, which is was, still wrong. He
0: was just vice the vice president, president. But I mean, I don't know.
1: Well, play it again, because it's the last time we're going to play one of these things. So I want to play that again.
0: And you're the ones that sent Barack Obama the presidency, and I have a simple proposition here. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you like, we see help out. If not, vote for the other by.
1: The other by.
2: Maybe he's coming out as by and simultaneously outing the other by.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, who's the other by? That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> um, there it is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Joe Biden. Um, he, uh, South Carolina was always his firewall, um, <clears throat> depending on whose uh, average of polling you are interested in. Um, his firewall, I can, let's put it this way in, uh, let's see, three months ago, November 12th. Well, let's see, let's, let's see if I can get it to actually, it's like, uh, actually three months ago. So November 25th, 2019, Joe Biden had 35 points. In polling on the RCP uh, Real Clear Politics poll average, thirty five points. Warren had sixteen, Sanders had twelve or thirteen. I guess you want to round up. And today, Joe Biden's lead is uh, a little more about five points. Uh, that's the five thirty eight. He's um, his the the polling average. I think is. Um well that's actually just giving the actual is that the average? I think the average on uh well on RCP it's uh 26, you know they have different polls that they use. 26, 27 and uh Biden's 21 22. So it's about 5 points on uh on 538, I think he's up by about what is it uh
2: What? 7 points. Bump he just got.
1: 7 points. Yeah, he just got some bump there. It's unclear what it is. Um that seems to coincide with a drop in stire. Maybe that's him coming into the state and doing a little late in the last you know, uh, week advertising and, and whatnot. Uh, we will see. If it is the case that his ground game there is weak, then uh, we will see that poll eroded, that lead eroded. But the, the bottom line is, this was his firewall. And if Bernie Sanders comes within five percentage points of him here, And, you know, splits the delegates. Joe Biden's just not viable. We have a poll that came out yesterday, I think it was, morning consult. Maybe it was this morning. I think it was last night. Showing that Bernie Sanders' uh, polling lead has increased and that he is now leading amongst black folk in the Democratic primary. And so uh, we shall see.
3: Hell
2: yeah. We well, we've see. been hearing from a lot of analysts that Biden's support is squishy because a lot of them are low information voters who are willing to switch when presented with new information.
1: Well, I don't know if it's that they're low information voters as much as it is that they right. his support was a function of. And I think there's a lot of Democratic voters this year, as opposed to other years. Where their number one. Determination, determinant is whether they think this person can win in the general election. Oh, that too, for sure. And nobody knows why, you know, really for sure who can win or not. But certainly, past performance is at least, you know, a cue for people. I don't know if it's accurate, but it's a cue. And if Joe Biden's claim to fame and his uh, number one qualification is that he can beat Donald Trump, it... It's hard to reconcile him losing the first three primaries and uh the idea that he is the candidate who can win. Mm-hmm. And so uh that is that's always been Joe Biden's liability is that he doesn't that his depth of support is uh, pretty shallow insofar as it's tied into his uh, ability to win. And as he doesn't win, it becomes less likely that uh, people perceive him that way.
2: Yeah. And if he's no more electable than Bernie is, people might default to the issues that they care about because they care about those in addition to electability.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly possible. Um, But we'll see after tonight anyways, and then uh, we'll see what, we'll we'll see what happens. Uh well, the debate is tonight. I should say the election is Saturday. Sorry, I keep getting that confused. All right, um let's go. We were going to play this uh, clip yesterday. Um you know, I I I don't I'm not terribly interested in uh you know uh, continuing to talk about, you know, just some uh, random uh pundit on um on on MSNBC. Uh, I'm a random pundit on MSNBC, and um, uh, I don't know if I would uh, like it if somebody uh, built their whole YouTube show. Ah, You would. I would would like it. I would like it. But uh, that aside, and I want to say, I encourage you to do that. Um, Actually, um, I've had a pretty good experience with that in the past. But I think this is important because um, Michael Bloomberg is a unique entity in the Democratic field. Because, whereas I don't, you know, I mean Joe Biden. I think honestly, like the biggest thing that scares me about Joe Biden is that I just do not think that he has the the the, the stamina to to run a robust campaign and has the depth of support to to beat Donald Trump. Um, I you know his policies not my favorite. Uh, Pete Buttigieg. I think not only do I think he would lose, but I think like he doesn't have any policies. He stands on nothing. And I don't you know, i i i a guy like that is just going to go to the highest bidder uh, immediately, it seems to me. Uh, and others, you know, I mean, I have my various complaints with different, you know, all the candidates, including uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, but Michael Bloomberg represents a. Um, a problem of a of, of a different ilk. Yes, I think he, he pursued a tremendous amount of racist policies in New York City. Yes, I think his understanding of the financial crisis is um, highly problematic, particularly in terms of what he would do uh, going forward in that regard. Um, yes, I think his uh, desire to cut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and perceives these things as luxuries in some way. Um, is, is problematic. And yes, I think the fact that he walks amongst us as if he was a deity and the rest of, uh, of, of humanity is basically, you know, it's his responsibility to take care of for them. But that's, you know, it's Make some type of Straussian uh, perspective. But the other thing that is highly problematic, that is indicative of a problem that we have in our democracy, is the influence of money. The influence of concentrated money. Concentrated power that exists in the context of corporations and concentrated power that exists in the context of individuals who have so much money that they can literally change the course of things like Bill Gates doing with education in this country for the worse, by their own admission, by their own admission. Michael Bloomberg is going around now. Yes, it's true that he, he gave money to uh, Republicans uh, to take the Senate. Yes, it's true that he financed uh, Rick Snyder in Michigan. I mean, do you think he's going to win in Michigan? I mean, aside from the fact that he's, I, I think like he is a guaranteed lose in the general election. What is really important is people understand the impact where that type of concentrated wealth has on our government and on our society. All the endorsements he's bought. That kind of money is really fundamentally at the, the, uh, the root of, of, of problems that we have in this, uh, this country. It's, it's both reflective of a problem and it is in some ways the, a problem in and of itself. It's both. That must be named. And you can say he is a plutocrat. That his, the money, he is a part of the plutonomy and, and because he has so much money. And we played that video yesterday. Maybe we should play the other one uh, soon. We, We have another one. But it's super important for people to understand it. He is an oligarch. He has so much money that he has the power of literally tens, if not more than tens of millions of people to shape the policy, but speaks with one voice. And often it could be women completely misinformed. I mean, the reason why people were poisoned in Flint, Michigan, was because of a failure of democracy, because the the electeds were stripped of power. And the governor simply appointed someone to run that city and they were not accountable to the people. Imagine that times 10 when you have someone whose money is the basis of all their power. And so when Jason Johnson refuses to accept the concept that, that Michael Bloomberg is an oligarch, it is very problematic. And he must know it because here he is on uh, XM uh, satellite radio referring back to a an argument that he had with Nina Turner on uh, MSNBC about the term oligarch. And here he is changing and reinterpreting what that exchange was all about. I don't know if maybe he went and looked on Wikipedia or what, but here he is explaining it on the Karen Hunter show.
8: Her professionally wrote great articles about her when I was He's at the Chicago He's talking about Defender, Nina Turner. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when everybody thought that she should run against Marcia Fudge. Okay, mm-hmm. so like I've, I've been cool with Nina for a long time. I've had personal conversations with her about her support for Bernie and what I think about that and whether or not it makes sense. What actually happened on the air was she was doing an interview with Chris Matthews and she referred to Mike Bloomberg as an oligarch and she was like oh we got to do something about these oligarchs etc etc and i was like good guy really really is this is this what we're doing and so uh the student said hey Jason would you like to say something i said look this is not the kind of language that you should be using in campaigns. This is that high-minded grad school cipher crap mm. that a bunch of sort of liberal penheads want to throw out because they want to sound smart. You don't go around calling people oligarchs in America. First off, most people don't even know what the hell it means. But he is kind of an oligarch. though. But that's not the issue. <laughs> okay, pause it. All
1: right, all right. So there it is. Okay. So the fact that he's an oligarch is not the issue, according to Jason Johnson, in this interview... And the reason why you don't do it is because you're not speaking the language of the people, of the masses, who don't know what an oligarch is. Now, first off, I get news for you. Watching cable news, if you don't know what an oligarch is, you should be educated to that. Because you represent... A significantly small portion of people in the country who theoretically are the most interested in politics, and therefore that is the most important people to educate because they're the ones who go out and talk to other people, theoretically. But I'm not here to argue whether um it is smart to say the word to oligarch if you're running a campaign, well, you know, which again. This is a debate show with Chris Matthews. Nice I mean, for him to care so right. much about Bernie messaging. But that's what it is. If, he's, if this is a messaging thing, um, then how does he explain this is what he said on that day to Nina Turner? Which is not, if you hear the word messaging, you tell me.
8: I mean, you work for a candidate who's part of the 1%, I have no problem with criticizing the system, the system that allows Mike Bloomberg to make all the money that he makes, the system that allows him to buy what he wants to buy, the system that allows him to buy himself into the administration and buy himself into the debates is a problem. But to call him an oligarch, I think, is a misnomer in this environment. And again, you're working for somebody who's part of the Pause 1%. Pause it for one second. It's
1: a misnomer. That
8: means you've named
1: him Incorrectly. He's not an oligarch, in other words. Now, a misnomer in this context, I don't know what that means. That's like, uh, you know, for us oldies, like, you know, Norm Crosby doing a a, a, a routine on, uh, on The Tonight Show. A misnomer in this context? No, that's exactly the context in which you would call him an oligarch. It's the context in which he's an oligarch. But continue on. No, no, hold on. I want to I keep hearing him. He's going to, because theoretically, right, this is just about messaging. Professor. He's a professor.
8: Part of the 1%. Do you call him an oligarch? No, you don't. Go back. Go back. Yeah, go back. And again, you're working for somebody who's part of the 1%. Do you call him an oligarch? No, you don't. You say he's a rich guy. because just All right, because pause it. <laughs> now, I don't want to quibble
1: about yes, whether Bernie is in the we first. Uh, I don't want to. I will. <laughs> If it's in with the 1%, it is true that in one year, Bernie Sanders uh, earned, and maybe in multiple years, I don't know how, how long the book pays off. Got a long tail, Sam. <laughs> he, um, he was in a, the 1% of uh, income. Nationally, it's like $400,000. I would imagine in Vermont, it may even be less. Uh, in New York, it's like probably double that. I don't know. Um, but in terms of net worth... You need, I think it's $2.5 million to be in the 1%, if I'm not mistaken, in the United States. And uh, Bernie's net worth is somewhere around supposedly $2 million. Um, and he writes down... Uh, it's February 5th. And then he says, and then he goes on on February 5th, he says, like, he talks about all these oligarchs. um. He puts Bernie Sanders in with George Soros, Mike Bloomberg, Mark Cuban, Donald Trump, Oprah, Jay Z. The the disparity. I mean, we played the video the other day of the rice, right? Like, yeah, look at the money: sixty billion dollars for Bloomberg. Tyler Perry has six hundred million. George Soros has uh, eight point three billion. Um, Bob Johnson has a billion. Bernie Sanders has two million in net worth. Uh, Bill Gates, $110 billion. I mean, this is just absurd. It's just absurd. And all right, so let's go back. So it's, I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm being a little picky, uh, 1%. But the bottom line is, if no, let, let's hear it, because maybe there's more opportunity. I don't want to cut them out. I don't want to come off. Um, Does he think oligarch just means someone with money? It means when you have so much money that you can go and change the nature of U.S. education for decades. Because you think in your head you know what you're talking about. And then after the 10-year experiment's over in terms of the Gates Foundation, you hire the Rand Corporation. They tell you, eh, we got it wrong. Should have listened to the educators. It's it's sort of like the difference between buying a mayor and buying mayors, plural. Right, exactly. Or, you know what? I got news for you. Like, You got to be in a pretty small town to take some of your $2 million net worth and be able to buy a mayor. Like, I don't think... You might be able to get, like, one parking spot somewhere. Parks and Rec Center. Right, like, here's 50 grand. Can I get a parking spot out in front of my house or whatever it is?
2: Like, I don't think Jay-Z's ever bought a mayor. Well, I
8: wouldn't. I have no idea what jay is doing. Jay-Z's
3: but... a billionaire, so He's let's living not it up. defend Jay-Z.
8: Exactly. Here we go. Do you call him an oligarch? No, you don't. You say he's a rich guy. Because just because somebody has a tremendous amount of money doesn't mean that they're not necessarily representing the people. And if you want to use the term elite, you you can use whatever kind of term that you want to use. But at the end of the day, the enemy of this country, the enemy of the poor, is not just everybody who happens to be rich. It is a capitalistic system that abuses people. And if you want to speak about that, that's fine. But if you want to name-call people, that's not going to help Bernie if he becomes a nominee and he's going to need Mike Bloomberg's nominee. Now,
1: now listen, Here's, here's the fact. It doesn't matter if you have a capitalistic system. If you have someone who has so much more money than who has more money than fifty percent of the population combined, and it was probably like Bloomberg has more than one third of the population combined. To be fair, he has more money than a hundred million people together have in this country. It doesn't matter if there's a capitalistic system or not. That's why you can have in systems that are not capitalistic, that are just simply like, I don't know, uh, just just aren't even systematized. You could have an, an oligarch in, in, in Somalia, you know, where there's like barely a system.
2: Yeah, you could have an oligarchy under some form of authoritarian communism. Oh,
1: Exactly. Somebody comes in and has that type of money. They're an oligarch. It's not that this it may be capitalism that created that oligarch, but the existence of that oligarch is a problem in and of itself. And it is you could tax that oligarch in such a way that it would confiscate that money. We could just say in a capitalistic system. Uh, one, one law. We're doing one law. We're going to do one reform. Cannot own more than $500 million in wealth. Well, let's just say $250 million. I don't know. $150 million. Whatever. You pick the number. Everything else about the system is exactly the same. It's just that you can't have that much wealth, and if you do, we confiscate it through taxation. If you want to leave... Capital flight, we lose a couple of billionaires, big deal. It's like a salary cap. Big deal. Big deal. A rich man buys one loaf of bread a day. And you would get rid of that one problem. There'd be other problems, there's no doubt about it. But you would get rid of that one problem. That is, they would not have the money to go and drop... $750 $750 million into uh, education. They would not have the money to go and drop $5 million like the way that I, you know, where's my pen? Where's my favorite pen? Not even favorite. Where's my third favorite pen in the office? I lost it. Oh, well, that's what $5 million is to that dude. And you start to buy uh, people all around. That's, that's basically what we're talking about.
2: So. Well, it's somewhat encouraging that Bloom, even Bloomberg stands are forced to pretend to criticize capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, this guy's a tenured professor.
3: I know. But... Yeah, I got news for you about credentials.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is probably just my like PMC upbringing talking, but you expect them to be a little more coherent than that.
3: To think that oligarch might have a, a sort of connotations outside of just talking about Russians
1: in the nineties. <laughs>
2: Maybe he's getting paid by Bloomberg. Who knows?
1: Um, Should we do this uh, Grinnell thing? What should we play? Oh, here we go. Let's do Tucker Carlson. So this coronavirus, um, I mentioned this uh, yesterday, and 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 we're going to increasingly talk about this, I think. Um, Brendan says it's not that deadly. I'm not sure about that, buddy. It's
3: not that deadly. Don't worry about it. It's all <clears> be <throat> fine.
1: Um, we have over 80,000 infections globally. 77,000 uh, cases uh, have been reported in mainland China. Uh, nearly 3,000 deaths. This is according to the Associated Press. China's not been exactly transparent about this stuff. Uh, and Donald Trump is not pressing them very much because he's afraid of the stock market and the trade deals going south. The virus continues to spread rapidly. The disturbing part is, now uh, there, uh, there's a couple of different stories about uh, you know coming out of China. One of the problems with having an authoritarian regime, uh, and there was a great piece uh, by... Uh, I can't remember. I can never pronounce her name. Zadim Tukfri or something Uh, in uh, I think it's in the Times where, you know, you can listen to everybody, but a lot of times you can't hear. And in the same problem that you had in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, where people were complaining about the quality of the water, but because there was no uh, electoral accountability, there was no response to that. You have the same problem in China and you also in these authoritarian regimes have this problem where everybody's just covering their ass. And if you saw Chernobyl, uh, the, um, the depiction of Chernobyl um, accident, you would see that dynamic uh, to the point where the guy who first reported on coronavirus in China was actually uh, actually died and was was basically arrested by the, the Chinese for for exposing it.
2: Well, on the upside, they're good at enforcing quarantines.
1: Well, they are good at enforcing quarantines, but the idea that it spread so quickly in China Uh, when they have that ability to do quarantines, which we don't really anywhere else in the world, and certainly not in this country, uh, is a little bit alarming. Nevertheless, what do you take away from this? If you're going to report on coronavirus, do you talk about how uh, problematic it is that the president of the United States seems to be both ignoring the CDC – and downplaying the whole thing because he doesn't want to upset the stock market because he's afraid it's going to impact his reelection. Here is Tucker Carlson giving his take on that. If that concerns you in any way, if you think maybe we ought to take some steps to protect ourselves from it, then you're a bigot. Coronavirus panic is racist profiling against Asians, lectured some arrogant moron at Slate.com. A writer for the Seattle Times warned that, quote, yellow peril racism was the real epidemic fear and so on. Countless publications wagged their fingers in the face of readers and told them it was irrational, probably immoral, in fact, to worry more about the coronavirus than the annual flu. Identity politics trumped public health and not for the first time. Wokeness is a cult that lets you die before they admitted that diversity is not our strength. So fast forward to today. What began as a regional outbreak in the city of Wuhan, China, is now spreading across Europe. Parts of Italy are shut down tonight. Yes, it is diversity that is spreading. Now, the fact is, is that how many t- uh, tens of thousands of, people die, how many thousands of people die of the flu every year? A lot. Um, the flu very well may be more uh, deadly, but the idea that, like, what, we're, what, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to put a cone around uh, China or some way. I mean, what is it exactly? Because we have Chinese people in this country.
2: It is true. If you stopped everyone from moving around the globe, that it would stop the spread of disease. But that's not going to happen.
1: Well, it's not just I mean, but that's not addressing diversity. We have diversity. It's that you want to stop air travel is what you're talking about. And I don't think that's what Tucker is saying. Is Tucker against planes? There are uh, 16,000 deaths from the flu, the CDC, in this country. Is that right? Every year, annually. 280 now. So it is quite possible that the flu is more dangerous. Um, The coronavirus is, I think, um, 280 out of two. I don't know. It's a little bit less than 5%. Seven percent death rate. Um, It may be similar. So this is just another thing that uh, that is on top of it. But the idea that this is a function of diversity, as opposed to like having an interconnected world with airline travel and with um, cruise travel and whatnot, is absurd. Is absurd. And if you're really worried about stopping the coronavirus, maybe you should get on the phone because apparently you have the ability to call the president and tell him to stop worrying about the stock market and getting the country prepared to deal with it. Because our preparedness is apparently zilch. Like well, We got we, the market health insurance, health companies. I'll remind you, we have 16,000 deaths annually from the flu. And I can assure you that our vaccination rates for the flu are much higher than they are for the coronavirus.
2: We can't even get the vaccine for the coronavirus yet. Is there one yet? They're working on it. I just read an article about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's my point is that. And um, probably the place where we would manufacture this is also under lockdown, more or less at this point. There is a story uh, from Axios that there are now 150 potential drugs. We don't know what they are, but they include antibiotics, generics, and some branded drugs without alternatives are at risk of shortage if the coronavirus outbreak in China worsens. This is according to two sources familiar with a list of at-risk drugs compiled by the FDA. Now, I would imagine they're not going to release this list because people are going to start to hoard them. The agency has been in contact with hundreds of drug and medical device manufacturers, also coordinating with global regulators like the European Medicines Agency. (laughs) Well, the diversity. You woke people. So stupid. This
3: is uh, like when Dave Rubin went on Tucker to say that wokeness was causing the uh, California wildfire.
1: Uh, that's uh, true. That's true. Because you have all sorts of like, I don't know what, what. I don't even know how. I don't. I can't even come up with a fake. We need more minorities on this
3: firefighter truck before we can fire truck before we can go out and fight fires. I guess is the, right. That's the, right. That's Sorry, we don't have a quota. <laughs> can't fight the fire. That's how they riffed it anyway
1: unbelievable um uh here is uh bernie sanders on um on anderson cooper the well like i say um michael bloomberg is unleashing the kitchen sink on uh, bernie sanders um and of course because it's michael bloomberg it's a gold plated kitchen sink um the the really uh, tough stuff is that um Forty three years ago, he wrote a satire that was uh, the aim of which, at least as articulated in the, the piece, was saying that we are constrained by our traditional uh, gender roles. Um, he did it with some pretty bad satire, rapey stuff. Um, but
2: whomst among us has not written some boneheaded stuff in college.
1: Um, I certainly got in trouble for some, uh, some satire of that, uh,
3: of that ilk. Um, I don't think Bernie's, I wonder what these two guys talked about in this meeting. If it was,
1: uh, I mean, look, yeah. it's, it's ironic. Bloomberg is obviously dealing with, uh, trying to pay off, um, uh, people who he, um, you know, had settled with over sexual harassment, uh, suits. And so one of the best uh, defenses is a good offense. This came up in 2015. In fact, I tweeted out an NPR article about it that that dealt with this in 2015. But some of the other stuff is that Bernie Sanders almost said the identical thing that uh, Barack Obama did about Cuba. And uh, here is uh, 60 Minutes um, interviewing Bernie Sanders about that.
0: Back in the 1980s, Sanders had some positive things to say about the former Soviet Union and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And everybody was totally convinced. Here he is explaining why the Cuban people didn't rise up and help the U.S. overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro. And
7: he educated
0: the kids, gave them health care, totally transformed the society. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing, even though Fidel Castro did it? All
1: right. And so, you know, one thing we should also say is that when uh, Castro came into power in the first couple of years, I mean, well, uh, initially, the United States was an ally of of Castro's. Um, And it is quite true that uh, particularly, you know, leading up to the Bay of Pigs, um, Castro was quite popular. The whole thing, the
3: whole reason the Bay of Pigs happened the way it did is because we had this theory from like expat Cubans in our own right wing places that we would go there and everyone would be like, oh, thank God the liberators have arrived. And actually, no, they got uh, torn up on the beach. Yep.
2: No, if anything, the constant threat of U.S. imperialism and invasion has incentivized socialist leaders around the world, specifically in, in Latin America, to be more militarized and authoritarian.
1: It's because it's a, they're constantly under threat of coup. It's a
3: subsidy to the authoritarians in all these movements.
1: Um, but nevertheless, he he had a somewhat nuanced perspective, which is, and nuance is maybe even too strong of a word. He said, yeah, they're authoritarian. But they had a literacy program. I mean, who could say something like that? That should be automatically disqualifying Oh, what's this clip that says WhiteHouse.gov on it in the corner? That's weird. Play this.
8: And I, I said this to President Castro in Cuba. I said, look, you've made great progress in educating uh, ch- uh, young people. Every child in Cuba gets a basic education. That's that's a, a huge improvement from where it was. Medical care. You know, the, the The life expectancy of Cubans is equivalent to the United States, despite it being a very poor country because they have access to health care. That's a huge achievement. They should be congratulated. But you drive around Havana, and you say, this economy is not working. It, it, it looks like it did in the 1950s. And so you have to be practical in asking yourself, how can you achieve the goals of, Equality and inclusion. Wow. He
1: didn't even qualify that by saying there was an authoritarian government. Now, to be fair, we have a stream issue. All right. Well, we'll, f- we'll finish this up. Um, he, he did not say, uh, he did not qualify by saying they're authoritarian. He uh, basically just uh, went on to say, like, there was a problem with the economy. I don't know, Barack Obama, canceled.
2: I love the uh, gusano ass tweet that Pete Buttigieg did about Bernie's statements on Cuba. Because in between Bernie making those initial statements and now, Pete Buttigieg wrote a very nice essay about him.
1: Yeah, Mm. Yeah, Pete's essay came out in the meantime. So what's happening now with the uh, stream? Are we down on the uh, video?
3: Let's fix it. it looks
1: like we're back on YouTube, I guess. Oh, and we restarted streaming. Did we lose the first one? I don't think so. I, don't think, I think we'll probably just tack them on. Tack them on? Yeah, it'll, 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 just, it'll just miss based on the part we do. Yeah, okay, I guess there is two. All right, so there's two parts today to today's show. Um, let's take a uh, phone call, shall we? Calling from a six one four area code. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Uh, let's
5: take a uh, phone call, shall we?
1: Let's, let's see. Guess we're streaming to this guy. Hello. Calling from a six one four area code. Who's this? Where are you calling
11: from? Let's take a uh, phone call,
1: shall we? Oh, now it's echoing over. Bye bye. Like staring into the abyss. I know. I, I know, I know. That's terrible. Calling from a 319 area code. Who's this? Where are you calling from?
4: He's but watching something else. Bye-bye.
3: He to be watching us, guys. Yeah, come on.
1: What do you think? Oh, should we do a random rush? What time is it? It's 2.30. It's the bottom of the hour. He's probably not on right now. We can try it. Let's see if we can do this. Let's see.
2: Get him while you still can.
1: Yeah, exactly. Where is this guy? Let's see. Listen now. Bear with us, folks. Trying to see if we can listen to uh, Rush Limbaugh. See if he's still uh, kicking. (laughs) Come oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah! I just picked a random station.
6: I believe that the president has <laughs> learned.
1: Okay, I think um, I think we got him. Wait, oh no! Is that uh, was that you? Oh no! That was uh, yeah, that was
3: my Susan Collins. President has oh, learned drugs. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Let's see.
1: Ugh.
9: Huge supporter of Trump, and I know it doesn't okay. mean much now, but I thought he was a kind of beat.
1: All right, put that, put that. Uh, okay. All right, folks, it's time for uh, an Flashback episode back to nineteen eighty. It's time for not. an episode of Random Rush. That's where I listen to Rush Limbaugh randomly for ninety seconds uh, or sixty seconds, and then I reply in ninety. Been a long time since we did this bit, but uh, we may not have much more time to do it. So I want to do it, and I'm that with all due respect, of course.
0: Uh, all right, uh, put them on. I think they think so too. I think, I think that I, I think they think that Trump is going to. Well, we know that that lunatic Al Green, a Democrat from wherever he's from, said we got to impeach Trump, or why are you going to be reelected? They all know incumbent presidents have this power. It's called incumbency. Hmm. It's got to be, I've often thought about this. Here you are, any president, but let's let's do this with Trump since he is the current president. Trump has been through the rigors of a campaign. He went through a campaign where nobody, except a few of us, thought he was going to win, much less had a chance. Vanquished everybody. Didn't spend a whole lot of money. He finagled the media into giving him free... Look at all those rallies they televised. Because they hated him so much, they kept waiting for him to implode. That's another thing that has them ticked off. Trump plays them like they are violins that he owns. And now Trump is watching this madcap group of frustrated Democrats try to do what he did... And he's sitting in the White House or traveling around on Air Force One or over in India, speaking to a crowd of 125,000. He's been there and he's done it. He is where all of them dream of
1: being. He. OK, I mean, not so interesting, but. um Uh, The fact of the matter is, is that first off, I listened to Rush Limbaugh very carefully in the run up of 2016 because I was fascinated by it. And he was not on the Trump train. He was he was not on a different train, but he was just basically uh, uh, by the station. And every time the Trump train came by, he would jog alongside it a little bit. But he was not on the Trump train. But aside from uh, the self aggrandizing, um, the uh, it is true. Incumbency is an advantage, of course. Incumbents usually win. Um, and it's quite possible that Donald Trump might win again. But I will remind you, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by over 3 million ballots. He won uh, in three states with a total of 70,000 votes amongst those three states. There were millions of people who voted for Obama who stayed home. Hillary Clinton was uniquely ill-suited to run against uh, Donald Trump more than anyone else. And so um, I think a fairly competent Democratic candidate who does not alienate the low propensity voters— Has the best chance of winning against Donald Trump. And I think um, there's a couple of those candidates, I think, that won't, um, that will not alienate those low propensity voters. But uh, Bernie Sanders, I believe, is one of them. So we shall see.
2: Yeah, and it remains to be seen if he can get out people who don't normally vote because the primaries are not indicative of the turnout in the general election.
3: Isn't that kind of mixed about the, uh, the indications as to whether he's turning out new people? Because my impression, at least from the first two states, was that he is getting some of the people who you need to turn out that don't off like young people, but he's losing all the old people. And eventually they'll come in line in the
1: general. I, I mean, look, the... The percentage of people who voted for the first time, I think it was in Iowa. One of these three states is lower than it has been in, in uh, 2008. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, I don't think, I mean, there was a piece in the New York Times saying he is not bringing out new voters. It is not clear that he's bringing out a substantial amount of new voters. But it's also not clear that he's not. It is a very, very weird situation that we have in this election because I'm convinced that there's a significant cohort of Democrats, high propensity voting Democrats, who high propensity in terms of a general election, who are basically sitting back on, I can't decide. I don't want to decide. I'm going to vote for the Democrat. Show me who it is. There is no doubt that Bernie is not strong amongst suburban women who are an integral part maybe a key part of the 2018 um, election but it's also not clear that they really need someone to vote for as opposed to voting against I mean the fact of the matter is there was a record number of Democrats that came out in 2018 record number they won by a record number of votes. Now, you have to win by more than than normal because of all the gerrymandering. But they, that was not because there was a whole class of really repugnant Republican congressional candidates that were uniquely, 2018 provided like a unique class of, no, it was because of Donald Trump. So the bet is that those people who are disgusted with Donald Trump, Those people who unfollowed Mindy because she came out as a uh, Bernie supporter, they're still going to come out and vote against Donald Trump. That's the bet. That's the bet.
2: We should have asked Mindy what her sense is. Are these people going to vote blue no matter who, or are they going to sit it out?
1: Well, I will find out, you know, and there may be, you know, and, and then the, the other argument, it seems to me, and I mean, that's the bet because i think you know most people would 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 argue or concede even that bernie sanders is going to bring out a uh is is uniquely situated to bring out voters who were not there in 2016 the real question is you know will he bring out will he keep those people who you know who came out in 2018 um the um and, and, and and you know, time will tell, I guess. The argument that he's going to hurt down ballot races, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because, I and you know, it's conceivable that you're a suburban woman who's like, I don't like Bernie Sanders. he creeps me out. he smells, whatever it is, right? That they, uh, you know, that, that MSNBC. He shouts. He shouts. <clears throat> I don't like him. In fact, I don't like him uh, as much as I don't like Donald Trump that person voted in 2018, I still think they're going to come out and they're going to vote for their democratic candidate in their house or the Senate. I I don't see why they would stay at home. Like, I think like if you, if, if the point is I hate Donald Trump, but I also, hate Bernie Sanders. If you're that invested, you're the type of person who would go and specifically leave the ballot blank. That's what happened with Clinton. Yeah. And, um, the problem, the real problem with Clinton was not even that as much as the people who just didn't show up to vote.
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Bernie has way fewer haters than Hillary Clinton.
3: Yeah, I mean, on that point, I don't think it's actually even true that people think he's too shouty. I think it's true that a bunch of media people think he's too shouty.
1: But
2: I mean, there's look. There's some crossover between the groups we're talking about. You know,
1: about. I mean... Mindy just lost 2000, uh, you know, supporters because she said she was, I mean, so there is
2: still has like 500 million.
1: No, I know. But, but the, 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 for people to unsubscribe for a take, like, I mean, have you ever done that on Twitter? Like how many times have you done that? Right. I mean, it's a big deal. I don't, I listen, I don't think people should delude themselves as to, you know, whether there is actually some real disdain for Sanders out there. I think there still is. The question is does that uh disdain Trump, the disdain for Trump?
3: That is what I call the Trump disdain question. Like this conversation would be so much harder if Romney was the president right now and we and Bernie would have to go up against Romney. Yeah. Like it's Trump oh, Trump sure. kind of makes this conversation a lot easier. Yeah. Like if you're if you're on the bo- fence between Bernie and Trump, I mean I don't know. Do you think I don't know how that that population
1: can't be that large. I think if it was Mitt Romney, I think Bernie would have a big a real problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a fraction of those types of voters who are just like, I don't want my taxes to go up. Or maybe he just seems like a jerk who knows and won't vote for him. But I They're highly feel
3: like
1: the
2: majority of people especially people who like really identify as Democrats, they're going to vote against Trump.
1: Well, that's true. But recall, when we're talking about 11,000 votes in uh, Wisconsin and 20,000 in Michigan and 40,000, we are talking about fractions. I mean, that is that is exactly the point. There's uh, there's no doubt. Well, we live in an era
2: where Bernie would do well, I think.
3: That's why we make the opposite. We just got to hope. Did.
1: We just got to hope. Yeah. Right. We just got to hope that to the extent that, you know, Mindy's uh, compatriots in the suburbs of, uh, of Philadelphia uh, or of Pittsburgh uh, or the people who live in the suburbs of uh, Wisconsin or of Detroit, that, I mean, that's, that's the challenge. We'll see. We shall see. But, I mean, the fact is, is that I just don't know who you could make a better argument has a chance of winning. That's just the bottom line. Let's take one more phone call. Call from a 610 area code. Folks, I'm sorry. We're not going to get to any more calls. We will be doing uh, coverage tonight. And uh, tomorrow we'll also just be doing a wrap up. So we'll be doing some news tomorrow. Uh, 610. Who's this?
9: Hey, Sam. Mike from Pennsylvania. How this are you? This is almost
1: like an exclusively, like, you know, multiple-time callers a day. Hey, Mike, That's I'm right. glad you called. Uh, my attorney uh, got in contact with me recently and uh, noticed your uh, your Twitter um, avatar has lasers shooting out of its eyes.
7: Um,
1: That's right. And I'm not sure if you've seen the Majority Report uh, Twitter avatar. It is one with what? me. With lasers shooting out of my eyes. Now uh, I don't follow these well, things, but my, my IP Sam, attorneys do. This is a
9: derivative do. work off of Superman. You may have heard of it. The concept of shooting nope. lasers out of your eyes nope. might have predated. Nope. Um. Uh. majority. I'm
3: report, not
1: familiar with that, but
9: um,
3: I think yeah, room dividers yeah. but also but existed, but.
9: I would encourage your uh, attorney you. to send me a letter, so I can resend one about vexatious lawsuits and Rule Ten sanctions. So let's go. Let's go, Sam. Let's go.
1: Well, I mean, it's listen, my lawyers handle all this. I don't uh, deal with any directly. Uh, Mike from PA, uh, which you now, I guess, call yourself, uh, which is, uh, I think, something that uh, came from this program. But that's all right. Go ahead. Yeah,
9: yeah, yeah. I see you're trying to catch a hold a little bit of my huge Twitch.tv success. Now, Man. now regularly, well over a thousand uh, concurrent yeah, viewers. Yeah, I've, so. heard
1: yes, I've heard that. I've heard that.
9: All right, right, so started, what's started to crush it. Thankfully, because Jamie, that was the real turning point. Jamie came on my program, and people got more interested.
1: Boom! There so you go. I
9: want to credit her.
4: All right, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I do what I can. So I wanted to.
9: Call... Yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Sorry.
2: Oh no! I just said I do what I can.
9: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so Mike's been on my show. You know, Jamie's been on my show. Uh, I'm sure Matt'll get on my show before Sam does.
1: Well, I yeah. mean, what am I going to do? Just come on your show? You haven't invite you haven't invited me.
9: All right. Well, I'll, I'll send you an email. Uh,
1: as Joe you, Biden you know. says, where I come from, you got to ask when you're running for the Senate. <laughs> yeah,
9: you can put them next to all the other emails
5: I sent you.
1: Um, oh,
9: all right, all right, all right, all right. I what I wanted to talk to you guys emails. about. If I could, yeah, was to dispel the notion of a broker convention and how like laughably stupid this idea is, um, I think
1: I, think I did that yesterday, Mike... but okay, all right, that's fine, <laughs> say again, I think I did that yesterday, Mike, but apparently you were too busy prepping for your show uh before <laughs> to, to watch this one,, but go ahead,
9: yeah, 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 I mean, just most of them are premised on the idea that people can stay in the race. And Tuesday, Super Tuesday, is going to be the last day for almost every single candidate. They just don't have the funds. They already don't have the funds. They're on shoestring budgets. They can't run any advertising. Um, They're begging for, like, immediate infusions of cash. Both Buttigieg and Warren did this. Everybody knows that Biden basically had no money for almost the entire campaign. (laughs) So there is no credible way they can stay in. The only person who can probably stay in is Mike Bloomberg. And he doesn't seem to be catching on anywhere. Um, And all the evidence shows that a Bloomberg versus Bernie race is going to be heavily in favor of Bernie.
8: Well, Um, so
1: yeah, I mean, I have an alternate theory as to why there won't be a brokered convention. Is that it would just be too stupid? I mean, like, like I think that if if somebody comes in with within like a three or four point, uh, you know, difference between Bernie. And that other person, I think it's conceivable there where people could maybe convince themselves like, oh, this won't destroy the party and we'll be able to come together after this. But if they um, I just don't think there's enough deluded people who think that they can win against Donald Trump if they broker a convention that does not land on the person who has a plurality of votes. That is anywhere around like, you know, anything above six, seven, eight percentage points, which I think is, you know, the most likely scenario, uh, at least, that Bernie lead that Bernie could take into the thing. Now, it's, you know, who knows? Maybe Joe Biden today uh, wins South Carolina by 20 points. And uh, then all of a sudden everything changes. But um, I I just think that I think it's more likely that to the extent that there's a desire to not have Bernie, uh, as the, uh, as the nominee that, that people just decide like, okay, he gets the nomination. We sit it out and we wait four more years.
9: Yeah. I think the, the thing for me is, I don't know that I agree with you because I have a much lower opinion of democratic establishment figures than you from personal experience. And I have no doubt in my mind that if they thought that they could block Bernie, they probably will. um, uh, I do think that there's a significant number of elected officials who would balk at, like, if it, you know, if it takes the entire superdelegate race, you know, superdelegate slate, they're not going to be able to pull that off. But if it's plausible, you know, uh, I think they'll I think they'll do it. I mean, I look at the way they dogged the race in Maryland with Ben Jealous um, and basically gave it to Larry Hogan, who's a Republican uh I don't doubt that that they'd be willing to do the same thing against Bernie, even even against Trump. Um, And that's why you see a lot of. Well, that's what I'm saying,
1: though. That's that's what I'm saying. That's different from 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 the convention. I'm saying that they would sit it out. They would let him they would let him uh, get the nomination and would rather see him lose rather than trying to, like, sort of obviously swing the nomination at the con- at the convention and then suffer the consequences for that.
3: And I, consequences and I, yeah,
9: I mean, I guess think that's possible. But, you know, one of the things that's always true, I mean, and I and I and I agree with you, but I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that the convention is so mathematically not going to happen at this point. Um like, uh, it, it's something that always pops up. But Bernie's won three straight states. And he run won the last one pretty convincingly. Like, and he's leading big in California. He might very well lead by 400 delegates on Super Tuesday. Right. So, like, that's I, not going to happen. What right. will happen is he's the nominee. I, I, think, I don't want to call it because who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. But I think right now, you know, Nomiki on her show said something like Bernie's, there's like a five percent chance Bernie doesn't win, and I think that's probably pretty close. Um, yeah,
1: I, and I would say, I mean, you know, as of today, like you know, eighty-five percent chance he wins. Maybe I'd be a little bit less. Uh, yeah. You know, but, yeah, and but, I don't.
9: Yeah. I don't think people are really realizing that. It's
1: well, like, I think it's okay no. for people not to realize that. <laughs> um, no,
9: I, mean, I think I, th- you're right. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I want to. I want to see the uh, the the point where, like, I don't want a Jeremy Corbyn moment where they have three years to bash you know him i want them to stay surprised as long as possible because that means less time spent attacking him but i think you know they're starting to wake up right now and we're seeing you know the 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 feared oppo is finally coming
1: yeah yeah absolutely
9: can i say can i say one thing about that sam like the the oppo attack line yeah yeah. So as somebody who's ran campaigns before, you need at least three weeks of repetition on your ads. If you're going to be doing any kind of negative attack, we're less than two weeks away. There isn't anything. I mean, maybe Bloomberg can bend the curve and do it in a week and a half. But just in mechanics of like shooting a television ad, contacting ad buyers, getting those ad buyers to reserve slots like there's just no time. So if there was some knockout oppo that they could be running, they would have already run it. So I'm not even sure, like, why this gets said in the media with, with a straight face. Because they have an absence uh, of
1: content and they need to fill it with something.
5: <laughs> I guess so.
1: Well, I mean, honestly, I think to a, to a large extent, the oppo is the, the idea that there might be oppo.
9: Yeah, you know, no, you're absolutely right. That's and it's the same thing with this down ballot weight. Like Bernie Sanders is going to hurt down ballot. You know who hurt down ballot? Hillary Clinton.
1: Yes. No, I, like, I yeah, I agree with you totally. I, I be, because she suppressed the vote.
9: <laughs> that's absolutely right. And you had you had Professor Bitcoffer on a couple months ago, uh, and she talked about how like we live in a hyper polarized environment. Yes. And there, if there's one thing like This will explain American politics for everyone that they understand it is people don't define themselves really as strong Democrats or strong Republicans much. They define themselves
1: against its negative partisanship. Now, here's the one thing. Here's one thing that you will that that I have yet to hear in any calculation. You know, there was a uh, don't freak out medium post that was written by a Biden guy who was actually like the Biden's big money guy. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head, but maybe I'll talk about it tomorrow. And he was basically trying to calm everybody, saying, you know, Bernie Sanders got a 45% chance of winning, so don't worry, blah, 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 blah. The one thing that nobody talks about that I think is completely underestimated in Bernie's electability, and this is going to piss some people off, and I think that's why we don't hear it much. In this era of negative partisanship, Bernie Sanders will have the ability on a limited basis because he's got to walk a line here to deploy the fact that he has been an independent for part of his. um, Now, I don't know that he would say this, but I, you know, if I was the campaign, I would be, you know, there would be some surrogates in certain areas who would be going out and making this argument that his, sort of like distance from the Democratic Party, which is a liability in the context of the primary for what, you know, I'm sorry. For me personally, I think is silly reasons, but uh, whatever. The bottom line is, it's not going to be worth a ton of votes, but it could be worth a few votes um, that he is in an era of negative partisanship. Like you say, people vote against Republicans. People vote against Democrats. And the fact that he is like sort of, A little bit nebulous because I still go on shows where people are like, you know, have these comments where they go like, he's not even a Democrat. All right. Well, that's actually going to be a positive in the general election because people are going to vote against the Republican. They're going to vote against uh, Donald Trump. And so uh, I think eventually we'll start to hear more about that.
2: Yeah, people are fed up with both parties.
1: He hung up on me. He probably had to go do his show. All right, folks, we've gone way over. Um, we will be back in about five hours to stream tonight's debate, the thriller in South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Keep workshopping it. You in. do
1: your best. You do your best, folks. See you tonight. It
5: to get to where I want But I know somehow I'm gonna get there I wasn't looking when I just got caught Between the truth and the lie. But finding out won't make me feel any better Yeah, I Made for the option where you don't get paid, for the road that bends before it finally breaks you. I guess somehow I lost my drive between the one